Welcome to Looking for the Ocean, where we watch everything Pixar has ever made and what it means to us. Will we do that today? Debatable. But I'm Danny Vincent, and as always, I'm joined by Mark Young. I think we're going to do all of that. This movie means a lot to me, although I've never seen it before. Well, first, I'll just say this is a detour! This is, we've had a pretty interesting run here. You know, we had Cars 2, we did Mission Impossible Gross Protocol, and I think I mentioned this last week in our sign-up, I might not have, that the whole detour idea for this show basically came from this, both Ghost Protocol, this crazy Mission Impossible movie, a big swing for Pixar director, and then John Carter, a movie neither of us has seen, and a movie that is much more often talked about as an idea of what a modern flop is than anything to do with what the actual film and so yeah neither of us had seen this until me last night mark whenever you started watching this for this podcast i i did this once last night which i feel like is actually enough i don't, I don't th- and i did read a, a not a lot of the wikipedia page but a decent amount of it there's the wiki page for this movie is the most detailed wikipedia page i've ever seen Probably because this is a movie that's had a book written about it, which in and of itself is like, whoa, why did there a book written about a flop? I didn't know about the book written about the flop. I did go back and read the original short story that it was based on, and then I watched the movie, but I only watched it once because I actually wasn't able to get through it one time all the way through. I ended up watching it in three chunks. I did. I I, I watched it last night, and um, I did have to pause it a few times just to take a break because it was. It's it's an interesting movie. Uh, the book is titled, by the way, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood, which looks like it released. Well, I'll be real. This is like so. Is that self-published? Yes. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood. We're gonna get to the trailers and the marketing of this movie too, because you have to talk about the marketing when you talk about John Carter, because it's such a big part of the story of how it's a flop. But there is a fan-made trailer that's linked to on Wikipedia that we will talk about later on in this episode, and it was edited by the guy who wrote this book about John Carter. And the trailer is really good, so I don't know what the quality of the book is, but I kind of find it's got it a three point four on Goodreads. A four on Amazon? Well, but how can it be anything except collecting interviews in, like, Vulture or The Rap or anything like that? I don't know. No, I believe he actually did reach out to Stanton and stuff. Thing is, though, it's published in August of 2012. He's not going to be too open about the failings, you know? Or at least not failings of the movie itself. Maybe he'll talk about the marketing and, like, try to scapegoat it. But, sorry, I'm doing what you told me not to do. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. I just came on and we're like, we should talk less about things we're not sure about. Well, I will say that I'm pretty sure that in August 2012, he's probably not going to really throw anyone specific under the bus. I think that's just a general professional assumption that, you know, a couple months after your movie came out, you're not going to be... We assume you have a basic level of decency. Fantastic Four guy. Uh, Yeah, that's true. John Carter, Andrew Stanton's live-action directorial debut... As we alluded to earlier, this is one of the biggest flops, at least of the modern era. On Wikipedia, currently, it is the biggest flop. Interesting. Adjusted for inflation. Okay, okay, because that's an interesting thing, because we're actually in something that I know a lot of people are talking about. Uh, there's a big discourse going on right now about the, the summer is kind of a summer of flops, in a way. And you're right, it is the biggest adjusted for inflation. Actually, to jump ahead a bit to the impact section of this movie on the Wikipedia page, the head of Walt Disney Studios had to resign after the back-to-back release of John Carter and the Lone Ranger. Rich Ross, which was the head of the studio at the time, had to resign because this and Lone Ranger came out in the same... I don't know if it was the same fiscal quarter, but, you know, this came out in March. John, uh, Lone Ranger came out in July. Actually, that's not true. Sorry. Consecutive years. They were consecutive years because John Carter was 2012 and 2013 was Lone Ranger. 
And these are the two, as Mark just said, because I just opened the Wikipedia page myself. Those two top the adjusted for inflation bomb list. And it is interesting to talk about too, currently. And also, it's really silly because it says this list has some asterisk next to it. It says turning red is one of the biggest bombs, is listed as one of the biggest bombs of all time. Just because, you know, they put all the money in the movie and they made absolutely nothing off of it. But, like, that's... Because it was put on streaming. They do have that little sign there because it went to streaming. Like the Matrix Revolutions. Resurrections. Resurrections. Yes, although I do think the Matrix would have. I have a take on the Matrix, too. And I might... No, you know, I'll bring it up now because you brought it up. I think The Matrix Resurrections was very screwed by the... Well, obviously not just the streaming thing, but just... So, you know, they, they had announced that this title would be in their thing, so they were worried that... And this was all, like, in articles, like, why aren't they moving these movies? This is not conjecture. I don't have a link for it, but they're like, we're worried because we've already paid out the streaming stuff for these things. We can't just pivot them back to being in a movie theater. And we actually saw some of that this year with Evil Dead Rise and Magic Mike's Last Dance... Because those were movies that were designed just for HBO Max, and when they got moved to theaters, they had to go like very quickly to stream compared to the rest of WB's output. So it's all in contracts and stuff. It's very weird, very confusing. Evil Dead Rise was meant for HBO Max and not for theatrical release. It's so funny to me that these horror, like, because Peacock does this too with some horror movies, and I'm always like, why? Literally, you can dump this horror movie in theaters, pay a little bit of marketing, and you're going to make your money back. These movies are so cheap. Like, and that movie would have been huge. Well, it was. It did pretty well. Evil Dead Rise did well in theaters. But the thing about Matrix Resurrections was they promised it, right? But the thing is, they also can't... Because this was at the time they put it on in December. Was the time No Way Home was just, oh, we're bringing back Jamie Foxx's Electro. Okay, interesting. You're going to let him have another shot at it. Okay, cool. And then when it became more and more clear that Spider-Man No Way Home was like a going to be like a huge sensation because everyone loves those old spider-man movies and we're bringing back the foe and toby and stuff they couldn't move it because they can't push it back because they've already done the streaming stuff and there's nowhere to move it to get the imax and stuff but the thing is i always say is like they push that back to martin luther king weekend even with the divisive response if it wasn't on streaming would have had a huge opening weekend and probably fallen quickly off after because a lot of people did not like that movie but if it was in theaters... Well, I kind of get that. As it, it is the kind of movie that is designed to get a low cinema score rating. Yeah. Like, the action was bad. Well, he didn't even look like John Wick. What was that? <laughs> no one could anticipate what that movie was going to be, even though I think it is like an, another one of the great Wachowski movies. I think it's great. I love that movie. But yeah, I do think if it came out like an MLK weekend of 2020... Um, too, I think it would have done. And also, the thing goes, in 2022, first quarter did not have a lot of releases, so it would have had decent likes, too, probably. But instead, it completely bombed because it was available on streaming and couldn't get IMAX because Spider-Man was out. But anyway, John Carter comes out in March 2012. And I do think, I was alluding to Smart before, I'm just going to put my cards on the table now. I think the main reason this movie bombs, the marketing is bad. I'm not going to defend the marketing. I think the main reason this movie's bombs is it comes out in March. This is not a March movie. I know that sounds weird, but, like, I think this movie is, like, Avatar. It's, like, Tron Legacy. It's the Christmas blockbuster you go to see because you just want to watch cool space stuff. Or it's, like, Star Wars, I guess. You know, like, it is, that is the, the frame this should be coming out. It is a family sci-fi blockbuster at Christmas. And if not that, November or... Even October, because Dune did gr- fine in October. Not great. It did fine in October, because it had that dual release. But it still did okay. I think putting this out in March, and very specifically, do you know what other movies came out in March 2012? Not, not in the slightest. Well, week before was The Lorax. 
And the reason I know this is because if you remember Danny's Movie Club, which will keep coming out with these releases for the next, you know, these next couple years, because this was when I was in high school, we were voting between John Carter and the Lorax, and everyone picked the Lorax. <laughs> and I saw the Lorax, which I hated because I hate Illumination movies. In high school, you know, you don't quite reach that point yet where you're seeing movies alone. Not like today where I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go see Mission Impossible. I don't care. But more importantly, opening up two weeks after this is a film that Hollywood has no idea is going to blow up and become the biggest franchise for the next two years. But anyone who is my age knows this movie's going to be a hit, which is the demographic, like anyone in high school at this time, which is the demographic John Carter is aiming for, is going to save their money to go see The Hunger Games in two weeks. This comes out two weeks before The Hunger Games. Because people, they're like, ah, oh, it's just going to be like a Twilight. You know, it's just going to make, it's going to make money, sure, but it's not going to be... It's not going to be like Harry Potter big. Hunger Games is bigger than Harry Potter. That's what people forget. The Hunger Games and the Hunger Games Catching Fire both make more money in the U.S. than any Harry Potter movie does. And more importantly, with the Hunger, but the thing that makes Hunger Games crazier is Hunger Games isn't merely... They think it's going to be like Twilight. They think it's just girls are going to be in... Just teenage girls are going to be into this and their dates. Hunger Games is one of the rare franchises that my parents go to see. I'm actually hoping they see Mission Impossible, the new one, and I hope they get the trailer for the Hunger Games movie. Because I think they will be like, oh, cool, there's a new Hunger Games movie come out. Hunger Games becomes this rare... I don't know if you know the term four quadrant, but it becomes the rare four quadrant hint that no one expects out of a young adult franchise. Four quadrant means it appeals to male, female, young, old. That's what, and I know it's a dated term. I know it's a dated, I know, I know it's a dated term, but it's, it's a terminology that Hollywood uses. And this is aiming to be a four quadrant movie. John Carter is being positioned as Disney's four quadrant movie, which is really funny because I don't think the movie is that at all. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I liked the Hunger Games, <laughs> but I I remember the first movie being pretty good. But I don't know if it. I think Catching Fire is the only one of those movies I want to revisit. I do want to revisit them all before the new one, though, just because you know they were such a big part of cult- pop culture. And then those movies have no staying power for a lot of reasons. One of them is, you know, they split the finale. So it's like those last two movies kind of landed like a fart. But also it's kind of like Spectre. I think Spectre, the good dinosaur. So I'll probably talk about this phenomenon again when the good di- we do our good dinosaur. Actually, I don't think there's any way I would talk. No, like there's no way to talk about the good dinosaur without mentioning this. In the same way, there's no way to talk about John Carter about talking about the marketing. So those three, sorry. The last Hunger Games movie, The Good Dinosaur, and the James Bond movie Spectre all exist in this realm where they came out, they made money, but they have absolutely no sticking power to the point that when No Time to Die came out, I feel like people forgot who Christoph Waltz was and, and Leo Seydoux were in those movies. Because I, I think, you know, I always say about Spectre is, I always like, you know, talk about like roles Dave Batista be good for. And I almost always go like, he'd be great as a Bond villain. I was like, oh wait, he was one already. He's the henchman in, um, He's the henchman inspector. Wow. Yeah, he's the best part of the movie because he's like a silent, but like, de- so he does all this face acting. It's like, great. I love Dave Batista. Fantastic. But they all come out a month before The Force Awakens comes out. The last trailer for Force Awakens, I believe, comes out second or last week of October. And as soon as that trailer comes out, that's the only movie people are talking about. Everyone's talking about, oh, how are we going to get tickets to Force Awakens? How are we, or at least the only like big budget movie people are talking about. And as such, you know, people went to see these movies because they were out, but like the last Hunger Games movie dropped. So did, of course, Spectre. Spectre was always going to drop from Skyfall. But all these movies draw, and like, Good Dinosaur is like one of Pixar's lowest grossing movies. And the phenomenon is just, 
because people were wait- saving their money for Star Wars, so they had no interest really in these blockbusters. It's interesting that Creed avoided this, but Creed also isn't really like a blockbuster in the same way those other ones are. Yeah, Creed is, I mean, I'm calling it like an action movie, because I think that would be the kind of reach it has, but it's obviously, it's like a, it's a sports movie. Yeah, although Creed actually, I Creed 3 is like the first one to really hit like a big height, but all of them have made more than the last one, which is... Always a good thing for a friend, you know. See, them like, oh, good, okay, we'll keep making them. They're gonna keep. We making should get more. more Creed. I would love a Michael B. Jordan Creed Four. There's no way we're not gonna. Get, it made too much money not to get one. The question is, how do they cast around? You know who? Pretty but. easily, I think. It's not unusual for Rocky to, you know, come and go with villains. That's true, but I do think the ending of this one kind of sets him up as Dame to be a like a, someone being mentored. But also, you know, they all want to have cinematic universes, so maybe they were setting up a spinoff. So yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, back in March 2012, John Carter came out. John Carter, if no one knows, even though Andrew Stanton thought everyone would, John Carter is based on a book, uh, Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who is the same guy who invented Tarzan. So there's a lot of white saviorness and racism in all of his books. And I think that's, that's kind of how people think of Edgar Rice Burroughs now. But Andrew Stanton wanted to adapt John Carter because it was a book that he had read as a child. And also, as people pointed out, was a flaw in the marketing because it didn't mention this. John Carter has all, all these set pieces that later reappear in Star Wars and an avatar and every every space opera since then and that's kind of what the movie is it's got this really weird pace because it goes from set piece to set piece instead of having like an arc there's a quote on the wiki page about how he pitched it as indiana jones on mars which i think is a completely not the movie you get that is not what this this movie is the comparison I kept wanting to make, and maybe listeners of the podcast are going to be mad at this because I know this is a movie that people like that I don't, but it reminded me of Denny Villeneuve's Dune if, like, it attempted to have fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if this movie ever actually is fun, but you can tell it's trying to be. <laughs> yeah, I think it has fun. I think there's a lot of... I, I think the movie starts strong. But then it kind of very quickly wavers off once we actually get to I this. was really curious to hear your thoughts on this movie as someone who had not read Princess of Mars. That's you. And you also hadn't read Dune. So that made me think like, oh, maybe you wouldn't like Dune as much because... As someone who liked Dune, a lot of my enjoyment comes from knowing what's in the book and all the stuff that they're leaving out. I, I was just curious about that. But that's that. so interesting because um, I remember I saw Dune with friend of the podcast, Matt Smith, and he's a huge fan of the books. Saw it together. I left and I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't like that. He's like, don't worry. I also thought it was pretty rough. <laughs> so I'm like, great. I'm glad. I'm glad we don't have to have this awkward conversation where like when you leave, you're like, wow, that was amazing because I'm not impressed Well, the coolest here. part of Dune, which I may have mentioned on the pod before, is that everyone is psychic and can tell the future and a lot of the book of Dune is them having like Death Note style monologues about what is going to happen and what could happen. And it really helps flesh out the world and just makes everyone seem way cooler than they actually are. So like the Duke knows that he's going to die. Spoilers for Dune and all of that. But it's all it's all just kind of like inevitable. Oh my gosh! And then 
actually, I think that it's weird they split Dune into two parts because the second part of Dune sucks to me because you go out into the desert and you have Paul discovering all of these powers, but you're not around the trained psychic people anymore from the first part of the book, so you lose that, and they're just, like, in the desert being lame. I thought there were three good actors in the first Dune. Maybe three and a half of them. I want to just count Oscar Isaac for, like, showing up and being Oscar Isaac and me enjoying Oscar Isaac's presence, but I don't think it's a great... Per- like, you know, it's, it's Oscar Isaac, you know, it's whatever. Those three great actors are, great performances are, Jason Momoa, who I know is, like, whatever, like, I'm not going to get anything with Jason Momoa in this one, fine. But then the other two are Javier Bardem and Zendaya, who I know both aren't... I know that everyone was, like, making joke about how Zendaya was in the movie a lot. I'm like, I don't know, like... She brought personality because she has charisma and so does Javier Bardem. And everyone else here seems to be like monotone to me, which probably is in the novel too, but it's like, I don't really care. Like, you know, like you have to give me something here to like latch on to. Give me something to care about here. And so I'm like, oh, Zendaya and Javier Bardem are like major characters in the second part. Cool. I will be into this more probably. Yeah, the action just isn't as grand as it is in Dune. I actually, I, the one thing I think the movie made interesting is when they attack the castle. The scale of that was exciting, but I kind of, I kind of believe that Denny Villeneuve will nail scale, but not really do it for me in a lot of other ways. But Anyway, John Carter definitely tries to have fun, but I kind of interpreted the fun in John Carter as being something that, like, I don't find this fun, but maybe someone would. Like, you can tell that they're jokes, and I'm like, maybe I'm just not the guy for these jokes. You know, I said the big problem with John Carter's financial thing was the release date, ultimately, more than the marketing. I think the big problem with this movie is Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> I think I he shows up, right? He's talking like this. I've never seen anything with Taylor Kitsch before. So I just assume he's putting on a voice. And then I suddenly realize, maybe maybe he is putting on a voice, but it's a voice he's going to use the entire movie that never sounds like he's a real person from the 1800s. And moreover, he's just kind of a meathead. And I wish I could, because I've read so much writing about this movie over years, you know, because people always talk about this whenever Andrew Stanton comes back now. Like, it beca- it's a huge part of talking about Andrew Stanton as a filmmaker, because why wouldn't it be? He made one of the biggest flops of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the big story, we talked about this with Finding Nemo, actually. The big thing with Finding Nemo is Finding Nemo didn't work because they revealed Marlin's backstory in the whale scene. And that's why the movie didn't work initially. And they fixed it by moving it to the beginning of the movie, and immediately everyone was like, oh, I care about Marlin. I understand why he's being a helicopter parent. Why we, like... Keeping it secret just makes him come off mm-hmm. as a jerk. And I bring this up because I think maybe it was like Film Crit Hulk or someone else in like my... Because er- he would be someone I was reading in 2012. Um, and I was probably reading spoiler articles about this movie because I didn't mm-hmm. care in 2012. And I like, he was the one who pointed this out. And he was like... And I'm sure people pointed out too. Where this movie makes the exact mistake that Finding Nemo initially made. Of John Carter just comes off like an annoying prick for the first half of the movie. And then he goes, oh, his kid died. But it's also revealed in this cross-cutting editing, like, action scene. Which is cool. I actually do like the match cuts. But it's like, the match cuts weren't worth it. Because I still don't care about him. Because you are still somewhat obscuring this tragic backstory. Yeah. And I also just think Taylor Kish is giving you nothing. He's giving, he, he comes off as a meathead, and later on in the movie, you know, like, by the end of the movie, you know, he's supposed to be like, oh, he, he's, he's worthy of the princess. That's also the thing, too. Why are they getting married at the end? I, I don't buy because that Because he's at the all. strongest he warrior on Mars, a, and anyone would love to marry him. You need to have someone charismatic like that. Like, 
I maybe I'm not gonna say this is the right pick, but you need a Channing Tatum type for that, who's willing to play into the goofiness a little bit more. Not someone who's gonna play it deadpan and like go <gasps> like I, I you know I just did a face on a podcast, so of course that didn't go to the listeners. But he's constantly like making this concerned face. I feel like whenever something bad happens to him or like an eye roll, and he just looks annoyed. It doesn't look like. He's, like, mugging for the camera to be funny. It looks like he's being... And, like, you need something, like, exasperation. You need, like, funny exasperation for that stuff to sell. And he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Taylor. What do you think about Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 4? Because you mentioning that made me think of something that, you know... I don't know. I hate to like. I I put this out into the world to see what people think, but the tension in Tom Cruise's jaw in Mission Impossible Four freaks me out. Okay. Well, I don't know. Am I? I, 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 I don't even. Just, I don't. I don't no, know if people no, are wrong okay, me, but that's my thing about all, like this. No, but I, I mentioned this in our last episode. We need stuff like in Mission Impossible Four where Jeremy Renner goes, "Hey, your line's not long enough," and he goes, "Oh no, shit." You need something like that in this movie from John Carter. And I think it's written to be there, but he plays it all so straight. Well, okay, I thought I thought we were talking about, like, physical gestures, but yes. But it's that, too, though. Like, Tom Cruise will give, like, characters looks and, like, he's on, the, like, the head, like, you know, he's on his headset talking, listening over to Neil Kapoor talk to Paula Patton. He's making these faces, and then he goes, all right, wrap it up, wrap it up. But you can see it already in his face that it's comedic annoyance, right? He can do mm-hmm. that. Taylor Kitsch never does it in this movie. I think Lynn Collins does it a couple times in this movie too, and it, like she, like it's like good, like great, a character that disappears for the second half of the movie. Lynn Collins <laughs> is great in this movie. I feel like she captures the this is campy, but she still plays all of the dimensions of her character. She just plays them in a very extreme way. Like, she, she just really gets, you know, it's not even, it's not like the genre, but like the tone of the movie, she seems to really be locked into it. Yeah, I agree. I think she's great here. I think, again, I also go back to this thing where, you know, I'm not talking about the bombing of it. I think this movie was destined to fail. Um, watching it, because it's like, I enjoy this. I don't think on any level this would ever be appealing to a mass audience. Especially because, I mentioned it before, uh, I rewatched Pirates of the Caribbean this weekend in theaters. Um, and I was like, oh, great, I did this before John Carter, which is what this movie will probably be compared to, because it's a Disney live action. They're, no, they're not comparable at all, really. Because I always, you know, this is always lumped in with Lone Ranger, which another movie I haven't seen I should see, because I like Gore Verbinski, and everyone tells me I would like The Lone Ranger. See, it's really funny, and I was thinking about it, though both those movies were, I'm pretty sure Lone Ranger was also in Danny's Movie Club, and they voted for Turbo, that movie about the snail who wants to go fast. And in this case, I do think I would like Lone Ranger and John Carter more at the time. Even though I'm sure John Carter is still going to be like this weird failure. But I could see me liking the Lone Ranger. Uh, obvious things aside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Danny likes the Lone Ranger is the title. Well, I, the, the thing I keep saying to people about my Pirates of the Caribbean screening is... Nothing more ominous than... The, I don't mind applause that is directed by Gore Verbinski credit. Because, you know, this is a crowd of people who went to AMC to watch a movie that's on Disney+. Plus. But the applause of the Johnny Depp credit is oddly threatening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... it's but, uh, I, so back when you were telling me you watched Pirates of the Caribbean to prepare again for this movie, when when I thought about rewatching it, I was... Oh, I, I, let's be real. I want, to, I want to see Pirates of the Caribbean because I want to watch Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, but people, but people say about that movie that really it's Johnny Depp's performance that makes that what it is, not not anything else, even though it's a pretty... It's a very well-made movie. But it really is the newness of Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow that 
made it into a big deal. And that is what I will say is something that I think is lacking from Taylor Kitsch. It's not like he's, I don't know, I, it's, kind of, it's kind of mean to say like he could be any guy, but it's kind of like he could be any guy. The thing is, and you gave me a really great point here, and I, I'm going to quickly Pirates pivot, but then go back to your point about Taylor Kitsch and compare it to Jack Sparrow, which is Pirates of the Caribbean, to me, the original is a perfect blockbuster. That is a movie you can put on, on the background of any party, watch a bit of it, enjoy. You can revisit it countless times and find something new in it. And of course, you know, Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow is what blew up that movie, but it's Verbinski's craft and the intelligence to make the two romantic leads actually want people with chemistry that you want to root for and likable. Because they there's so much work in that movie put into Elizabeth and um, Will that... People for that's why the later ones don't work as much because they focus more on Jack Sparrow. Uh, although Jack Sparrow is still enjoyable in my opinion in the first, I like all the first three. But the other thing is, is that Orlando Bloom, another actor who people usually point to as not a great actor, just looks good. I haven't seen Kingdom of Heaven, so I can't like you know be like he's actually good in that. I think Orlando Bloom is a good actor, and I think even if you say he's kind of weird as Legolas or somebody, he gets that he needs to be kind of otherworldly to play an elf. More importantly, he plays the straight man great to Jack Sparrow. Fantastic. He Jack Sparrow works all, always because of the people talking back to him too. If you just had people, and that's why the later ones don't work cuz people are kind of used to him by then. But well, like I I've, I've been bringing him up cuz Orlando Bloom Knows how to do this type of thing. John Carter to me is like, whoa, are those aliens? What's going on? Why can't I understand you now? And it just never feel. It's one of those things where when I was a kid, there was these book series called the Time Warp Trio. And I weirdly remember, this was such a weird thing I'd do. I'd read the books, but I'd only enjoy reading the first and last chapter. Because I found their adventures to be annoying, but I found like the buildup. And the return to be very interesting because that's when, you know, like they came back and it's like, we're knights now. What do we do now? Or like something builds up to them, like needing to go back in time. And I always thought that was interesting because it's like the stuff in the middle, you know, it's it's a movie. You can't be hung up like an hour later into the movie about, oh, whoa, there are green people still here. You have to you have to move on. But the thing is, you don't even feel, I don't feel like you even really get that initially. He's just jumping around a bit and he's like, oh no, people are chasing me. And he just runs and he's like, there's no sense of awe in what he's seeing. In fact, he's, he seems more impressed by talking about the ships he's seen at home. And a lot of that's also how, you know, Lynn Collins acts when she's talking about like, you're telling me there's oceans? Like, that sells me way more than him going like, what? Whoa, look in the sky. Mm -hmm. Now I'm doing my diary, diary babe again. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's who it is. <laughs> it is that's the voice he's putting on. Yeah. It's it's, he, have you ever seen anything else with him with this? Is this just his voice? I I have never seen another Taylor Kitsch thing because he's kind of a TV guy. Okay. Well, he did this in Battleship back to back, which also you know kills his. There's actually a really funny thing that people they pull out the two covers. One of them is like M Night Shyamalan. I, I know I butchered his name. I apologize, M. Night. I, I, I'm really sorry. Is the next Spielberg. People always pull that out. And now it's funny because, like, everyone's now... Most people are... Most cool people are back on the M. Night rules train. Um, he'll never be the next Spielberg because he's too divisive. But that's also, you know, that's... But then people also pull out Taylor Kitsch, the next Brad Pitt, <laughs> which was also a headline that I always am like... Yep, that one is stated. That one definitely works. Because, mm -hmm. you know, he's like, leading two major blockbusters, John Carter and Battleship. I always hate to say this, 
because I think that, and, you know, actors want to be able to do everything, but I do immediately know what you mean because Brad Pitt is a much funnier actor. Brad Pitt is also an actor who, you know, again, all things considered, we're not going to get into that other stuff. Difficult period in movie history to talk about. I, uh, well, then I think about um, the Shadow Professor at our time. The first time I ever spoke back to Shigun was at the end of my acting course, which was the first class I had with him. I don't know what he started talking about. Actually, no, it was my direction course, because it was I, I remember several other people in the classroom. Um, no, it was like we were doing feedback, you know, and he was talking about some of the actors, and he's like, some of you miscast this actor, and uh, you, you got to realize something, like, it's not like, play, he said something like, theater isn't like the movies, you can't just put Brad Pitt in the lead and call it a day. He's, like, he's not going to give you a great performance. I was like, I push back on that. I think Brad Pitt is a phenomenal actor, when he's given character roles. I think, yes, he's not good in World War Z, sure. I think he's fantastic in Tarantino movies. I think I enjoy him in the Oceans movies. And of course, I've never seen 12 Monkeys, but I know that is like one of those weirdo character roles he has, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Taylor Kitsch has that. Maybe he does. Maybe we're going to get an angry letter from a True Detective fan who's like, nah, you got to watch True Detective season two, uh, which is very possible. Maybe he's been, <laughs> I feel like True like... Detective brings out that type of performance from a lot of people. <laughs> dear, but, dear fan. <laughs> We will not watch True Detective Season 2, Love, Mark, and Danny. <laughs> but in this movie, he's not bringing anything. That's really the key. Maybe he has this in other projects. Because I know also he's supposed to be good. In, but also Friday Night Lights is a drama, you know. But I know he's supposed to be good on that show. It's but a what? Friday Night Lights is a drama. Like I would say that's his most successful role. Not like Kyle Chandler, where it's like, yes, that might be his most successful role. But you can point to other stuff, too. That's like, yeah, that's Taylor. <laughs> that's that's him yeah kyler chandler's got such a neat career i do think it's actually i just had this thought is there like a we could have a friday night Lights scale of like how you talk about careers from like taylor kitsch is like on one end kyle chandler's in the middle and then jesse plemons is on the other end you know <laughs> or michael b jordan's well, also yeah, on the michael other b. Jordan. end uh, yeah I mean, well i don't know it's just like i think like any any big tv show is like that i think friday night lights is more interesting even though i haven't seen any of it but like julius has told me that it's a really good show it's like the wire with football but yeah, a lot of interesting performances on this movie, and I really enjoyed. I really, I always enjoy Willem Dafoe. I, I wanted to. I wanted to bring this up because I don't want to. I, 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 this is what I really want to talk about now, and we would talk about Willem Dafoe after. I want to talk about casting Daryl Sabera in a Shia LaBeouf role. Uh, that is clearly who this role is written for, or like, it's so clear, like, who would have been in this role, like, two years maybe, like, maybe like. Not in 2010, because he's still too big in 20... But, like, in 2007, he would do, like, Transformers and, like, be in the opening scene of John Carter. I feel like that that makes sense. And Daryl Severa, I feel like, in a way, is giving more of what I want from Taylor Kitchens in this movie. Because he gives... In his very brief time in this movie, he has a lot of reaction shots where he constantly just looks confused. But, like, it worked for me, because I was like, okay, sure, like, that's fun. And I actually felt like his one scene with Taylor Kitsch was like, that was Taylor Kitsch's most engaged scene. That's an interesting comparison, because I think that Shia LaBeouf, even as a confused person, always has aggression. Like, whether he's in Indiana Jones or he's in Transformers, whenever he's confused, you know he's, like, analyzing the other person because he's about to say something. And Daryl Sabera is just baffled movie movie Shia LaBeouf I'm thinking like TV like whole Shia LaBeouf I don't think he's like angry oh well I haven't seen holes so 
Maybe that's correct. Uh, I, I've seen only clips, but I was actually going to refer to Even Stevens, actually, as the thing. But I was like, oh, I can talk about the movie. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Even Stevens either. I don't know. Shia LaBeouf is older. That's something that is confusing in the movie and also in the book. I don't know why they don't age up John Carter when he's after he's gone for 10 years. Actually, I did read somewhere in like the last 10 minutes, I don't know where... That there's an explanation that since he's like a clone, he doesn't age anymore or something like that. But that might just be for the Mars stuff. Oh, the movie is oh, so... Oh, it was in a YouTube comment on the fan trailer. That's why I read this. <laughs> the movie is frustrating because I think... And I feel bad saying this because it's about related to the book. But in adapting the movie, it seems like they've made a lot of choices to maximize the spectacle and the scale. And they're trying to cram as many cool things as they can into the movie. But you, you miss a lot of things that are important. I was so confused constantly in this movie. There's so much jargon. That's also why I'm going to do. There's so much jargon in here. There's so many different species to keep track of. Different types of, like, tech that they're talking about. I still don't know what the Ninth Ray does. It's the MacGuffin of this movie. And it's not like the MacGuffin in Mission Impossible 3 where the joke is that you don't know what it does. It is legitimately just... It's important. It could change the future of Mars. Yeah. No idea what it means. Yeah, well, that's that's a thing. They, they introduced something that was not actually in the original... That's not in the book. All of Mark's strong scenes are not in the first book. Those characters don't even appear. Everything that he does is just said... I mean, maybe this is like retconned in later books, but it's just done by the the Zadongans, who are led by Dominic West. Like, he's just an evil dude. But they talk about the technology that they need that is important is anything that can bring water back to Mars because they need to control the climate. So I feel like that's an example of like, they wanted like a big bat and a ray gun they could shoot. So that's why they have the therns who are infiltrating society. And then they give Dominic Sorry, West Sorry, I'm this. laughing because I'm imagining the listeners listening to me like, what? 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 What, what, is, what is this movie? <laughs> it would be, it, yeah, it's, I don't know. So let me, let me finish this and then I'll try to like give a rundown of things in John Carter. <laughs> And then, I don't know, maybe this will be appealing to some people, because it's actually appealing to me. Like, the scale of the world of John Carter is appealing. That's why, like, again, that's why it kind of reminded me of Dune. It's a very dense world, and I'm not opposed to it inherently. You just have to make it interesting and engaging. Yeah. But it's also, like, you have to pay attention to it, because otherwise you're going to miss a term, and they're going to keep using it, and you're going to be like, okay. Also, I'll be real, I turn on the closed captioning as soon as they use the word helium to refer to a place, because I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. That's the only real word here that's being repurposed. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Mark Strong is like the big bad in this movie, and it's just, I don't know, they just give him some super weapon instead of the... He's the Adjustment Bureau. Yes, he's the, he's like the Adjustment Bureau, but they give him some super weapon instead of explaining that there's this technology that they, that they use to keep there being water on Mars. I just, maybe what I meant by my earlier comment is they just try to put too many set pieces in in here rather than having a bunch of really good ones because once you have all these set pieces jumping on top of each other other things become less important like it's really bizarre that once lynn collins goes off to be married to dominic west and john connor doesn't want that he gets captured and he has to go to this arena and he's he's held in the arena i'll be real that was one of those moments where you know you look down for a second at a text you quickly like swipe it away you go up 
he's in arena. I was like, okay, what? <laughs> I was so lost on how he was, why he was even there. Yeah, and and he's being like captured by the Green Martians, and suddenly all of the urgency of marrying Lynn Collins is gone. And that is, there's also just I don't know another thing that bugged me. The, do you have anything? I don't. Sorry, this is I I have something that is a I think is a very good take, but it's gonna take me somewhere else. So do you have anything to say responding to what I've just said about the um the weird pacing of the movie i guess yeah whatever i was talking about i was just kind of saying nonsense words well we can keep the phone his pin i do want to talk about can we talk unless this is a completely different direction where you're going can we talk about the opening of the movie a little bit kind of yeah that's kind of what i want to talk about uh the movie i think uh i might be parroting a credit that i read in 2012 this movie has three opening sequences one of which is incredibly useless. It's Wilm Dafoe narrating exposition that's all given to us later, and it just causes you to be confused. I, I, it's really funny because you know I say open the movie with John Carter's ki- like kids getting kid and wife getting killed. That sequence at the beginning should be a flashback sequence once we actually know these people, and not when we're gonna take a break from them for twenty minutes to get, set up John Carter himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we get the Daryl Sabera. Um, frame story, which I really didn't have time to, but I know that's the sequence that they used in the TED Talk, where Andrew Stanton's like, look how brilliant my movie is. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, that sequence is so confusing, too, because it's like, okay, I don't know who this guy is, I thought he was, um, and then it's like, let me tell you about a story that happened 15 years ago, even though, as you said, no effort was put to make him look older and the briefness you see of him in the the Earth storyline part of it. And then you get a Western sequence of Brian Cranston, where I didn't recognize him initially, so then I pulled up the wiki page to look up a different cast member. I was looking to check if, um... I think I was looking to check, actually, who the opening sequence characters were, because I recognized Mark Strong, and I didn't recognize Dominic West. And I was scrolling through it, I was like, oh, yes, that's Brian Cranston there. Perfect. That's why... <laughs> yes, Brian Cranston is in this movie and dies pretty quickly in it. And then the movie actually begins when he goes to Mars at, like, minute 20. So, the... Ooh, I don't want to cinema-sins this. I don't want to rewrite this. That's something that we've learned is a bad thing. But here's part of my frustration with the movie, coming to it after having read something. So, the movie opens with a brief letter to Edgar Rice Burroughs, who is Daryl Sabera, explaining, come get my notes, I'm going to tell you a story. And that lasts about a page. And then it immediately opens the scene where he meets the Native Americans and is chased into the cave and is sucked away into Mars. And I don't really know if you need to, like, add much more than that. I feel like it's interesting that we have this outlaw Josie Wales background for um, John Carter. But it's, I just think it's like, it's like very slow. Like, we're not on Mars for a long time. And I think that... I think that's why they have the opening thing. I think that's why they have the opening thing to make sure like the audience knows they didn't walk into the wrong movie theater. And Sorry, go no, on. No, and they, and they do, and they <laughs> even talk about this in interviews. They explain well, that's why that's there is because you want that for later. But it's, it is it is weird to me that I think I think that Dominic West is the weakest part of this movie. And I think... Completely forgettable, in my opinion. Yeah, it's just like, why is it with Mark Strong, too? Like... I don't know. I don't like the action either in the film. I think it's incomprehensible. And I think they should have just been like, here's a cave painting and here's some narration with Willem Dafoe and then we're in it. But here's my thing about the movie is that 
it has ignored the racial politics of the book. Yes. Oh, sorry. Go on. I don't know the book. I do think it ignores the racial politics. It ignores the racial politics, but it the book makes it very explicit that and this you excuse me for using like a very uncool term but you, you you'll know where i'm going with this but the book makes it very explicit that on mars there are green martians and red martians and it is subtext that is basically text that the red martians are native americans who went through the portal to mars and I think the coolest idea ever is a Confederate soldier going to Mars and getting superpowers and becoming Superman, and then he has to choose between the native people of Mars and the humans who have come through Mars to the portal. And that po- those politics exist a little bit in the the books where they talk about, like, they kind of mentioned in the movie, like, oh, Willem Dafoe's character says, referring to his own race of people, he's like, oh, we don't fly. That's something that only the Red Martians do. But they don't call them the Red Martians. They, they just call them, like, other people. The nations of Zodanga and the nations of Helium. But it's all it's all there, right? And I and I feel like if you get to that core, you get what is not only the coolest part of this movie, which is him, which is this this loser getting superpowers. The political machinations become much more clear, and I think they would focus the story in a way that is I don't know much more intriguing to me rather than it's just like now we're gonna put in the scene where he goes to the arena. Now we're gonna put in this thing. Now we're gonna go to a space battle. Now we're gonna go to like a land battle. Now we're in like a an alleyway battle and it's just like let's just go from battle to battle to battle whereas it, it just doesn't have to be that way i'm not gonna like tell people the whole the whole book i think this is definitely something where it's interesting because it's like so many things you want to be like well in a reboot of this but it also it's like such a dumb hypothetical idea because they will never reboot the biggest bomb of all time right like this is maybe you'll get like maybe 50 years from now someone will try to like make an adult animated series of it right like yeah. that 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 maybe is the best option going forward for this property i feel like yeah to put it that way because i'm pretty sure it's in the public domain right yeah the the book is in the public domain i think this movie is interesting because i was reading the wiki page you know our, our our dossier the wikipedia page is that he wanted the villains to all be british actors this cast <laughs> is incredibly white and Lynn Collins isn't even British. But she's not a villain. She's just... Yeah. You know, she's... Nobody, she, I don't know what you but, mean. And by the way, anyone, just to, like, say what... You know, make you feel more what I was saying earlier. In this one, everyone's white, but they have red tattoos, and that's why they're red Martians. Yeah, anyway. and, um... But even, like, you know, the indigenous people of this movie, they're all played by white actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, also, isn't Samantha Morton British? Or am I mixing her up with someone? I think she's British, but that doesn't matter. she's British. Uh, I think what you're describing to me is a fascinating, like, if it was made today, would actually examine this whole thing where a Confederate soldier has to choose between working with aliens or, like, native people that he probably is biased against anyway but then also you have this whole thing where then it's a white savior movie in a way too where it's like but it already kind of has that vibe anyway that was the whole thing to me is when i was watching this i was like this is like because also you know the big thing they're chasing at this time is they want an app they want another avatar because this is a couple this is in 3d this is a two and a half years after avatar people want another avatar this is such an avatar ripoff even though i know it's not actually an avatar ripoff well it's the other way around but yeah you're right well but i I I think just mean like with production on the film the production of this movie predates avatar's release Mm -hmm. like because of how long it took to write it and stuff but (laughs) this is gonna sound really bad because avatar you know has its people who and I, they are all valid. They're all. I'm not. I'm not gonna speak against what 
our people have said it, and we've talked about it on this podcast before. Avatar does have its own issue with how it depicts, like, indigenous peoples. I think this movie's way worse, because I think Avatar at least tries to engage with it and kind of fails. This movie just removes it. <laughs> Other than the Native Americans they see that kill John Carter and his friends immediately, because the, the territory's been overran with them and they're crazy, which is bad, like, also really bad. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, I thought when they had the scene of him talking with the Native Americans that it would come back later, because in the book, he learns the language of Barsoom in three days by learning it by being a prisoner, listening to people talk. And I was like, oh my gosh, is he like, is he a big fuck up, but he's really good with languages? And that's going to come up again later when they're holding a prisoner. It's like, no, 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 you have psychic powers. That's how you can understand. And I was like, oh, well, I, what, the, way, what is this? Side, side, note, side note about the languages. I got, this is something I got irrationally mad at is, okay, so the way the movie is edited, right? We have the opening sequence in English, whatever, that's fine. It's the opening sequence. Lom Dafoe's narrating it. He doesn't need to be speaking Martian, whatever. 28, 28 minutes later, we arrive on Mars. John Carr's like, whoa, I could jump really good. Cool. And then the Tharks show up, who are, you know, our green Martians. And by the way, this is like one of those things where I think, uh, what was the other movie I was thinking of? There's another movie like this where they have complicated names and they're really similar. Um, but I hate that there are Tharks and Thurns. I hate that. Just name them different, yeah. please. <laughs> but that's that's an Edgarite Burroughs issue. Then that that's not. But and the Thorns um, are the Mark Tharns, Strong's race. Everyone at yeah, home. They're the Adjustment Bureau, um, which is a movie I will keep referencing. Assuming everyone has at least seen the trailer for it, because I've never watched it all the way through. But I just remember the premise. Um, the Th- actually, I think the Adjustment Bureau comes out around this time too, to give or take here. But anyway, the Tharks. As soon as we see them, they are subtitled. They're doing that thing I hate on streaming where it's the subtitled font and it's not the real thing. I put in my John Carter DVD I got from the library. I checked the font. It's okay. Good news, guys. Anyway, they're speaking subtitled Martian. Okay, fine, cool. There's a language gap. I I, I personally assume they're going to do this, the thing where they like they give him a drink and he's able to talk, right? Whatever. Like, that, that's a pretty typical sci-fi narrative. I mean, I mean or anything li- except for what they did because I don't think the mechanics of that are clear at all. But, like, they could have done anything oh, I else. Thought it was, I actually thought it was clear, but... Whatever. Oh, well. Lynn Collins. We cut to a sequence of Lynn Collins discovering the fifth ray and talking to her dad. Entirely in English. So I'm like, this is interesting. This this means that the English, the humans must be like an ancient race of ours because they're speaking our language. Cool. But then, you know, we, we got a couple more scenes of the Tharks. We keep cutting back to the, the humans that are speaking English. And then John Carter drinks the juice of Barsoon or whatever it's called. The voice of Barsoon, I think, is actually... I think it's, it's a very lazy name, I remember... Um, and he's suddenly able to understand the Tharks. Then, when these plots intersect very quickly, and her name's Deja, right? I should stop calling her Lynn Collins. Deja Thoris, but I'm worried that if we keep using their right names, it will it will become incomprehensible. Okay. But, I mean, her All name right, is fine, Deja Thoris. Lynn... So the, the the sequence happens where John Call- Carter and Lynn Collins meet. I'm going to keep calling him John Carter because I keep... I feel like I keep... Butchering Kitsch. Mm. Um, <laughs> also, don't worry. Hey, I know the title John Carter. Trust me. <laughs> I know it. I know it's the name of the movie. Um, mm. I don't know what it means beyond that. But uh, John Carter and Lynn Collins, they meet. And she's immediately able to speak to Thark. So I have the realization that she's been speaking Barsoon the entire time. And they're just too afraid to have these sequences be in Martian before he drank it. And I got really annoyed at that because I understand, like, you know, like, that's a different scene. John Carter's not there. It doesn't need to be perspective. Okay, but 
I don't know. I, I feel like they're... Because especially last week, you know, we watched Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. has such a great method of showing how um, Ethan wakes up and is able to understand the language through the subtitles. There had to have been a way to do that here. To establish beforehand that these races speak the same language. Because I legitimately thought, okay, they're speaking different languages because that's the human race. They must come from um, Earth originally. Oh. And then immediately was like, yeah. no, at least in this movie, no. And also that immediately made me, because you mentioned, this reason this all came to mind is because you're talking about how they're in the book, they're implied to be Native Americans. And and this, it's like, well, no way, because they're speaking English and they're British, right? So they got to be like some, like maybe some of like English settlers who somehow got here by accident, you know, a different part of like maybe in London, there was one of the therns there one time and they all got here. But no, there's none of that to this. <laughs> I should say Edgar Rice Burroughs is probably not a woke guy. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure the Tharks yeah. are supposed to represent the native people who are the native, like the Native Americans of Mars, and then it is supposed to be like white people who are the other people. I think it's just because of the language they use, and also just because of the context of the story that just jumps out to me as like if you were to do this as an adult cartoon or do it, and that just like it. It is so glaring to me that I, I feel... I mean, that's how I read it, and I don't think you, you were punished for reading it that way. But yeah, I, I that's an interesting take, and I kind of was not on board with it until you're like, I don't know, there should just be some way to make that transition so you know that they're not speaking English, because you're right, that's not exactly maybe, clear. Maybe you even have a moment in the first scene, like the opening monologue, and I don't think there's a moment in the opening monologue with this, where you just show them, like, maybe doing some trade, right? Maybe, like, there's just a trade. Like, there are multiple races that live on Mars. There are the Tharks, and there are the people of Zalonga and Helium. And, like, you show them, like, you just cut to, like, a quick scene of them both speaking Barsoon to each other, exchanging, you know? And then maybe you can cut, like, you can do your perspective shifts. There needs, like, to me, because it just immediately threw, like, I was just like, oh. Because it had me thinking, oh, this movie's going to open up to so many cool ideas, like, weird pulp hard sci-fi things with languages then it was like nah like they they do all speak the same language on this planet <laughs> like yeah and it really put me out like got me confused about the world rules too which you know happens a lot in this movie especially when mark strong comes in and what i actually think is a really great scene but then he starts talking about earth actual earth and then you're like wait what like do is this scene supposed to be in english how does he know all of this and I just feel like that's another time where it, it messes with your perception of what the reality is supposed to be while you're watching the movie. And I also definitely think that there's a um, there's a moment... I wish I... I'm trying to pull IMDb to find the actor. So there's this big sequence... We're, we're jumping around. There's this big moment at the end where, you know, we get... We actually, to quote another Pixar movie, which I always think is funny when this pops up like in like a Pixar alum thing. We get the monologue. We get the villain monologue where Mark Strong explains, here's why I've been evil. Here's why I'm doing all this. But I feel like it's not entirely Mark Strong because the bulk of this thing, this this big speech is given to an old lady shapeshift. Mark Strong's character's name is Matai Shank, which... Okay. Great that we're having Mark Strong play a character named Matai Shang, but whatever. All right, so, but the bulk of this evil monologue is given by actress Eileen Page, who's credited as elderly, elderly woman, parentheses, Matai, which I just thought was a bizarre decision. I really did just find this bizarre, like a weird choice to do, to give it to her. A clearly elderly British lady with a spray tan. 
Well, especially because we know that Mark Strong speaks to Dominic West as Mark Strong while they're in public. That's kind of another thing that's weird about the perception shifts in this movie is that when we're inside a certain perspective, we can see Mark Strong and we know that he's Mark Strong, but then to everyone else, he's actually a soldier. So sometimes the perspective shifts because of a cut or something. So he's like Mark Strong or a soldier saying Mark Strong's lines. And that's one of these, this is one of those scenes where John Carter is being talked to by the the elderly woman who is Mark Strong. But it is, it's just weird. And I guess they did it to like, make it more visually interesting because they didn't want it to just be Mark Strong. But you've established that they're shapeshifters, you know? You've established also, like, may, like, maybe it was, like, him showing off what he can do, sure, but it's, like... Yeah, it is, is all, like, what is... This is all there already. This is... You're not giving it him and You're not even giving John Carter anything new. Like, he knows this. I did, like, though, the effect, like, of, um... Like, the weird... I don't even know if it's a mechanism. It'd be, like, there's, like, a bio-weapon type of thing he does to, like, restrain him. And there's a moment in it where, like, it covers his Adam's apple to, and so he can't talk. And I was like, ooh, that's cool. I love that. Like, kind of, like, like things that immediately I'll watch, I'm like, ooh, that's a little gross, but I like it. There's a lot of cool imagery in this movie. That That is, I do think, I had a thought about, actually, is now the time we take the pin out of Willem Dafoe? Because I want to talk about the Tharks, so we can talk about Willem Dafoe first. I guess not. Our show should have more structure. Let's talk about Willem Dafoe. Well, no, I'm going to talk about the Tharks and Willem Dafoe. Yeah, 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 sure. Okay, okay. So Willem Dafoe, I do agree. He's great in this, but also... Like, I mean, he's just like, you know, I'm always happy to watch Willem Dafoe do his thing, but it's not like Avatar where they had non-white actors playing the indigenous people. Well, they broke that with Kate Winslet. We talked about that. But anyway, it, it is... Uh, what I wanted to mention with the Tharks, which I think is interesting, is that I... I I weirdly the Wikipedia doesn't mention this but I remember it in the build ups because again remember these movies like that we're at right now all come out when I'm in high school and I've already been on the internet for years and I've always been obsessed with these Pixar guys right so I've been following the John Carter development for years and there was a point at time when this was going to be released with Pixar on it with Pixar doing the animation and eventually you know they didn't really do much animation and I'm sure it was given off to VFX houses but you compare the Tharks to the Navi, right? Obviously, the Navi are going to look way better. They've, those movies are budgeted higher, and it's James Cameron who's like putting all of his effort into making them look good. I think the Tharks look cartoony, but I'm not opposed to it. Yeah. Because the vibe I get, and maybe, I don't know if this is intentional, it probably isn't intentional, but this is like a throwback to, you know, it's a throwback, of course, to what, you know, the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels and like the pulp of the day. But I feel like, it gives me a lot of Jason the Argonauts vibes, which I've never yeah. seen. But I think it's interesting that these look like animated characters in almost an intentional way. Because I feel like it's almost referring back to those stop, that obvious stop motion of the Harry Housen movies. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think, and maybe if we asked Andrew Stanton about it, he'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? I've tried really hard on this. So I have no idea if this is intentional. But I also think my reading makes the movie better. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that's wrong because I think that Wula, the dog creature, is also designed to be, you know, kind of cartoonishly cute. I know what you mean. The Martians, especially with their, they have like such expressive eyes that it's a little like, oh, you're kind of unreal. But I don't think the movie is afraid of that. I feel like because of the dog and because of the way Lynn Collins talks and how everyone's dressed, I feel like that's the kind of movie that this wants to be. Yeah, and I I, I, I like the Tharks. I think 
I'm more interested in the movie when it's about the Tharks than when it's about the Zobangas or whatever they're called. Sorry, I lost the name for a second. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what their actual name is because I just want I want it to like telephone and I think that'll be fun for the listeners. <laughs> Zobangas. Um <laughs> Never actor to mention. Dominic West, nothing. Meanwhile, there's an actor who shows up for once look, he's in the he's in a lot of the movie, but he shows up for one scene, shows more personality than anyone else in this movie, even though I still don't know what his role was in the story. And it's James Purefoy. Shows up as oh, a character. Oh, Cantos Khan? Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was great. I thought he was <laughs> He shows up. He He's like, he yells at John Carter, but then he whispers, like, I need you to pretend you're breaking me out. Oh, Instantly that was has great. has so much dude. more charisma than anyone else in this movie. <laughs> like, shows, like, incredible, like, incredible. I was like, oh. And I don't know if you read the, a wiki has the sequel plot on it. And apparently the wow. sequel is going to have that character return. Like, because Andrew Shane has opened up about it in the time. And apparently that character was going to have returned in, like, the 10-year absence of John Carter and been the wife. No, not the wife. The husband of Deja at the time. Like, they remarried and they, they married. But also, he was going to have been replaced by Mark Strong, right? Because Mark Strong doesn't die at the end of this movie. Oh. Mark Strong is still out there. Um, and I'm like, that's interesting, but I also would hope they don't set him up to, like, been killed off screen, because I love, the character is really good, and I, I really, that's what this movie needed more of. He should have been, he should have been with them the whole time. Imagine, again, this is where I'm, like, rewriting the movie to completely not follow the original book. I don't care. Imagine if he'd been, like, a prisoner of war with the Tharks, and he'd just been with them the entire movie. Mm-hmm. That would have made this so much better. You need, like, it's... It's like, um, I'm going to quote that podcast that you hate, but it's like one of their first episodes. Blank Check began as a podcast about the Star Wars prequels. And their big pitch on that show is the main way, and it actually wasn't their pitch, it was one of their guests, I don't remember which guest, is their main way to make Phantom Menace be fixed. And I know you like Phantom Menace, so you don't, like, it doesn't need to be I fixed. I mean, it can be, but if, if you, I think the Phantom Menace can be fixed, I I, the, I just, whatever. The, their guest's big fix was cast Captain Panaka. Do you know who Captain Panaka is? Yes, I do. Cast Vince Vaughn in that role and let him do his Vince Vaughn thing. That's their big pitch. It's like you need to have a character there that is annoyed by things. You need to have a character that is comically annoyed. Otherwise, that role is nothing. I don't know if I agree with it or not, but that is what my fix is like. It's like you put James Purifoy there. He's not going to be comic. If anything, he's going to be annoyed by John Carter being an idiot because he knows the world and John Carter doesn't. And he has such charisma in <laughs> like literally, I say five minutes. He's maybe in the movie for two minutes, right? Like at the actual lines, but he shows up. And it's like, where is this character? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, it's funny that you mentioned Vince Vaughn. Well, that's just the, that's literally the the actor they mentioned on the show. Like that's okay that they mentioned on the podcast as their idea. Mm, interesting. Because I, I know think, also True Detective season two. He's 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 just too big of a personality. But anyway, I'd have to you know go listen to that episode of that show. I'm curious. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I don't want to get too much into it, but maybe Vince Vaughn wasn't a big deal in '99. I feel like he's more of an early 2000s guy. You know who I would cast and not make it a white guy, but I cannot think of his name. Who's who's the guy that does voiceover? He's he's Great. he's a okay. famous. <laughs> no no no. Great. No he's he's a no 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 no. I know who I'm talking about. He's he's the dad in Nope. Oh Keith David. Yeah, they should have had Keith David do it. Keith David would have been good as long as he. The thing about Keith David is uh, I'd hope we would know to be and, comedic. And he's played by Hugh Quarcy, who plays the role fine. I know who Captain Panaka is, but I get why you would want maybe comic relief in that role. Yeah, and the role is played so straight. But anyway, 
I, I, I really wanted to shout out James Purefoy and people the movie for being in it for two minutes. Although, again, Lynn Collins is very good. That just, yeah, that, that, that really seemed like young kids playing. It's the only time in the movie where I get the Indiana Jones in space comparison. Mm-hmm. The only time. I also wanted to say, one thing I do really like about this is, and it, it might sound like a very simple thing, but... I don't think I've ever... It's something, you know, people always talk about with, like, old superheroes. Like, you know, how, like, superheroes just keep getting more and more powers as time goes on. Because it's like, you gotta you gotta make them cooler and cooler. And, like, you watch an old Superman short and he can just jump. And it's like, that's so cool. Like, that's all it was. And that's something I like about this movie, too. That John Carter's power is pretty much... Yeah, he is really strong, but really... He just jumps. And I think the jumping looks really good. I always like how the jumping... Especially that first scene where he's, like, the gravity's messing with him. I'm like... Yeah, this looks like that is the coolest visual effect of this movie. Mm-hmm. Just John Carter's jumps, and the reason I brought that up is because the end of that sequence, it's like, can you make that jump? And he's like, uh, I don't know. And he like does this cool triple jump up, and it's like awesome, very cool moment. You know what this movie made me think of? And going into it, I wondered if this was going to be the case. I feel like this movie could have used more of Hancock in it. Do you know what I'm? I've actually never seen Hancock. I've never seen Hancock. It's a blind. Sp- no, explain. I'm sure. Well, I'm sure a lot of listeners haven't seen Hancock, and you can explain it. Uh, well, except for the ending, Hancock is just a really fun movie about Will Smith being a jerk superhero, and I feel like that movie, because that movie is all about the effects that a guy with superpowers has on the regular world. I feel like it's an interesting comparison for this movie, which. I do think the thing to sell this movie on, to make it unlike other sci-fi products, is him being a normal guy getting superpowers. It's just an interesting way to think about how they might have better expressed the coolness of the movie and, and following John Carter's development as someone who is not just seen as a superhuman god, but someone who eventually can become, like, savior of Mars or whatever, and then, you know, would be someone who who Dejah Thoris wants to marry, as opposed to just a guy that she's kind of into from the get-go. And I actually kind of like their moments together, but it is weird that she immediately is attracted to him. That's something where, like, again, it goes back to what I said, the Taylor Kitsch cat, he has no natural charisma. Again, I, I go back to my... A Channing Tatum type or a Ryan Gosling type, you know, you need someone like that to sell this because whatever he's doing or like a a young Robert Downey Jr. type, right? You need someone to sell this that he does not have. Like literally, again, I said maybe he's not perfect casting, but literally just put Channing Tatum, like imagine Channing Tatum in this role. Playing it exactly, because even the original G.I. Joe, which is not a great movie, people bag on Channing Tatum for that movie. He's fine. The issue with that movie is that movie, you know? And I think that putting chain tape in this might be a little like, you know, people might be like, that's not what a guy in the old West looks like. Just put a mustache on him. I don't care, you know, but, <laughs> or again, like, Ryan Gosling is never going to read this movie at this time of his career, but, <laughs> yeah. or actually, this is what I was thinking too. We talk about Avatar, and this is why I should mention Mark Taylor Skittrains, but we talk about Avatar and Sam Worthington being the weakest part. Sam Worthington and Avatar is so much better than Taylor Kitsch here. I'm even just giving to the original Avatar. Like, he's not given a lot to do, but he sells he sells the romance way better because he at least gives something back to Zoe Saldana, right? I don't know. I think that, like, in in the brief moments together, they have Taylor Kitsch and Lynn Collins have kind of a spark. I think Avatar is written to be a romance, while while this is more like they're in love, forget about it, 
now we're gonna fight again. I, 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 I push against that just because I think of this whole sequence in the middle of the movie, which is the by far the biggest part of the movie I tuned out of, where they get to the temple or whatever it is, and they it's a ton it's just a big jargon exposition dump. And there's no romance there. There's no goo goo eyes. There's no he seems annoyed of her and she seems annoyed of him. And it's not like that push pull like you know, it's not like a, it's not a screwball comedy type of energy where it's like, oh, well, these people hate each other. Of course they love each other. It's legitimately like, I'm annoyed I have to rely on you and this sucks, so let's just get it done with. Mm-hmm. And that's where the romance should, that, that is probably the point of this movie where we get the most one-on-one time with just those two. And there's nothing there building their relationship. Yeah. And also, if you built their relationship in that scene, maybe I would have been more engaged in the exposition too, because mm-hmm. it's just, ugh. It's, I mean, I've, I wasn't so turned off of it by Taylor Kitsch. I think Lynn Collins is very interesting in this movie just because of how, how energetic she is. I think it's the same with Avatar, though. It's like, I Sam Worthington is kind of a turnoff, and, but Zoe, and Zoe Saldana is great. But, like, even there, though, I still, like, at the end where he's like, I see you too. It's like, you still feel something, kind of. Yeah. At the end of this where he's like, I'm John Carter. No longer be John Carter, but I'll be with you, John Carter of Mars. And it's like, great, that's how the, the movie's supposed to be. <laughs> I, I love it. I'm like, did no one catch this? At the end of the movie, it shows the title is John Carter uh, of Mars. I, see, I wanted to talk about that, because that made me think about the Irishman and how, you know, everywhere it's the Irishman. If you watch the movie itself, it just... So I heard you paint houses. I heard you paint houses. And there's like one small card very briefly at the end of a Irishman. <laughs> it's like, okay, so we know what Scorsese's style of this movie is. I feel like that's what this is, but mm-hmm. in a more funny way. It was like, was it a reveal that he was supposed to be of Mars and he didn't get there yet and he earned that part of the title? But no, because the movie's John Carter everywhere else. I think it's the Asylum movie was renamed to John Carter of Mars, the Asylum ripoff. That's really funny. Um, well, it was it was made before, but it's you know whatever to those people. It's it is it's funny every time there's a goofy ending like that. I I tell you and I tell the listeners and I tell everyone in my real life. I think of the ending of Magic Mike Two where he's smiling after and then I know. beginning. He was, I, I love Magic Mike XXL so like, which is a great movie, but it has the dumbest. Like something I mean, has changed. Doesn't need, it doesn't need to have a plot. It, you know, it's John. It, it's Magic Mike. The plot is an afterthought. But I go. I, go, I also go. I, I'm cutting you off because I'm sure you've said it on this podcast before. That's sorry. I think you I think about it, it all the want. time. <laughs> and I don't know why it wasn't called John. I mean, this is the thing you can really. All you really right, don't right. need to come here for this this take. But you can read all about you know the marketing of John Carter and why they changed the title so many times. I think it it should be John Carter of Mars. I feel like that's the obvious thing everyone it should be obviously titled john carter mars it's the dumbest thing ever it's not the whole reason that's always been given for it is that mars needs mom was picked was disney's probably third biggest I mean, this is a complete conjecture but i think it's could be accurate probably their third biggest bomb of all time after john carter and the lone ranger and they blame the title having mars in it in you know you, you think the blame would probably land more on the title moms in a kids movie exactly <laughs> Not the Mars part. Yeah. And John Carter of Mars, I'm sure everyone's thinking John this, Carter of Mars. It's like, Give what's John, John Carter, Carter doing on Mars? It puts that, that question in your brain. It's such yeah, a good like, title. Who, who's, who's John Carter? Like, like I made Mark watch the Super Bowl ad for this, which is the main bit of marketing I always remember about this movie because it's just clips from the movie zooming out to make 
Like, is it, do you call it a mosaic? I always forget the word for it. Like, if anyone like has mos- seen the Star Wars DVDs and they begin with the title and then the scenes in the letters, that it does this, but just over 30 seconds in a trailer. Alternatively, if you've seen Dear Evan Hansen the movie and there's the You Will Be Found number where it starts on clips of social media and then it keeps zooming out for like a full minute to a bunch of other things and it just reveals it's the picture of Connor Murphy. That's what this trailer is, but with the John Carter loco. Also, here's a very random hot take that I don't think killed the movie, but I think... Okay, so here's a quote from the wiki page. All right. This is something I wanted to mention because it stuck out to me watching these trailers, which is that... Santa noted that he was being loaned to Walt Disney Pictures because Pixar is an all-ages brand and John Carter, in his words, was not going to be an all-ages film. Okay, but Disney is an all-ages brand too. I I told you, I just rewatched Pirates of the Caribbean. That movie, very interesting actually, that movie opens on the Pirates of the Caribbean logo. It doesn't have a Disney logo in front of it. The sequels do, but Pirates of the Caribbean itself just opens, which is an interesting thing for me because I don't know if you know this about me, I have a quirk that I actually get really kind of annoyed at movies that, you know, open with, like, a Paramount Pictures logo, a, a Bad Robot. I'm using, I'll use Mission Impossible example, because this happened last week. It opens with, like, all these studio logos, and then you have opening credits where it's like, Paramount Pictures presents a, a Bad Robot production. And I'm like, it'd be so cool if we didn't have to have logos, and we could just, like, start the movie and move on to these, like, part of, like, the opening credits. It'd be so cool to me. But that's just like a weird quirk of mine. I'm going to let you continue. One thing I would disagree with is Inception, because that moment goes really hard. Just the opening production companies, because it because it's the Inception score. That's It's more to me that if a movie has that at the beginning, it should just have it. If a movie just opens, like what you're talking about with Inception, because Inception doesn't have any credits, that's fine. Put the logos on there. I'm saying, like, for example, I just saw Indiana Jones, right? Which has some bizarre logos in it. I got to say, can you believe that movie has the Disney logo on it? That's insane. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely crazy. But it opens with the Disney logo, the Paramount logo, and then the Lucasfilm logo, which has a match cut. Because, you know, these movies always have match cuts, even though it should be the Paramount logo for tradition. But whatever, it's Lucasfilm logo. They use a match cut on that. And then you, you the, the opening sequence begins, and then you get text cards that says, Disney and Lucasfilm present... In association with Paramount Pictures, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm like, no, oh, if you're going to do that, okay. just put the Lucasfilm logo on there for your match cut and then do the Disney and Paramount, uh, you know. And it might be a contract thing because Paramount isn't actually involved with production, but they have like perpetuity rights with Indiana Jones. But it's just like, to me, I'm like, if you had the match cut, that's fine. But you didn't even give me the Disney logo and the Paramount logo before it. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. I feel like that must be a union thing, though. Well, that might be a union thing very specifically. But that's why Marvel credits are so long. But I just said Pirates doesn't have it. And of course, Marvel doesn't have a Disney logo on it. Star Wars movies don't have Disney logos on it. Is George Lucas, like, still not part of the DGA? Those, 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 you, you, okay. I'm talking about new Star Wars movies. I'm talking very specifically about, like, Last Jedi, right? Okay. I'm just using that. As, or Force Awakens, because I just saw Force Awakens in Hansen. Force Awakens opens with just a Lucasfilm logo, and then in a long time ago about Galaxy Far, Far Away. I posit... That it would be cooler nowadays if we just opened a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and the Star Wars began. And that'd be cool because we are past that point. Because if Pirates of the Caribbean managed to come out with no studio logos, this is such a random rant. I'm sorry. But this is just the thought I always have watching movies. Because watching Pirates of the Caribbean, the movie just, or I think about, and if Jay is listening to this episode, which I don't know if he will be, but he'll be mad at me saying that. I actually really dig when Marvel does a cold open that actually works as a cold open. 
Like, for example, the more... I always point to the Guardians of the Galaxy one, where it's like, it opens with him getting kidnapped, and then you get the Marvel logo, and then you cut to the next, like, next thing. Mm-hmm. Or recently, a better one, a better ex- recent example is in Wakanda Forever, it opens with the funeral. And then you get the Marvel logo, which is a tribute to Chadwick Boseman. And then the movie starts a year later. I love that they do that, because it's like you give the movie a cold open. But beyond that, it's like, I wish movies could do cold opens in general of, like, opening credits, you know? And I feel like the logo's just kind of messed with that, personally. Mm-hmm. But that's this is such a me thing. <laughs> no, I mean, that's fair. I didn't... What on earth did they match cut the Lucasfilm logo with in Dial of Destiny? It's like, um... It's like... It's really... It's one of those things that's hard to word out, but it's like a door lock that you pull to this like kind of like a bathroom door lock you know what i mean like the little the like rectangle but it's not a bathroom door it's like a like it's a cell thing interesting taking any i need to watch it but it's weird that people complain about a prairie dog you know paramount logo when i'm i'm a little more baffled by a door lock i'm more bothered by it being a lucasfilm logo than it should have been a paramount logo well it's just when you go from the paramount logo to the mountain it's like whoa there's like there's a mountain that we're gonna you know, go up, or they do the dance number in Temple of Doom. I don't know, man. I'm sorry I really enjoyed Temple of Doom, but I get why people hate it, uh, and I kind of agree with why people hate it. But man, that is a fun movie. But, anyway, to get back to the point I was making until I got distracted by my own anger, is not the killer of this movie, but I don't think you can have these big epic trailers that tell you nothing, and then end with Disney, John Carter. (laughs) Like, (laughs) and I also think more than a lot of other things, because even Pirates of the Caribbean has a fun... I don't think this movie's... This movie's aiming for epic sci-fi with some fun on the side. I think the Disney logo in front of it is weird. And I know Touchstone has been, like... I think if this movie came out today, I think Stanton... And I say that, like, you know, obviously, like, this movie came out, Andrew Stanton's like, I want to now try live action, so we're going to give him that big budget now to do his original. I think it goes to Fox, you know? I think this movie opens with a 20th Century Studios logo. Like the, um, the new Gareth Everett movie coming out. Uh, I don't think this would get the Disney logo because I don't think it's Disney. F- it's not even like Pirates of the Caribbean or like the other, like Sorcerers of Prince of Prince of Persia that are more aiming for Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. This is like its own thing. And I think the marketing was trying to make it its own thing. But then you get Disney John Carter. And it's like, well, but that didn't look like a Disney movie. Like it, I don't think anything about this would appeal to a child. Other than the sequence we mentioned with, I mean, there's a cute dog, sure. Um, which I'm pretty sure later on, like, the commercials, and I know we didn't look at TV spots, but I feel like there was a point where the TV spots just always had the dog, like, panting, like, right next to, like, the release date. I feel like this is the type of movie that would have that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, here's the mascot. And a character gets torn in half, kind of, like, almost off screen, and then you do see a guy's head get collapsed. I wish we could have seen that. That would have been really cool. Like, the tear in half guy. I don't, I don't know. That was, that was, like... That was a little gross for me, because for me, this whole thing is like a Disney movie. I have accepted that they're not going to make it super serious from, like, from the very beginning when he's trying to escape from prison, and it's a joke, and then we see uh, Brian Cranston in his wig and his mustache. I legit did not recognize him until, like, a couple lines, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's Brian Cranston in 2012. That, that makes sense. Well, just, I think the whole thing screams Disney to me. It's actually some of the more adult moments that kind of take me out of it. Once it gets to Mars, it doesn't feel like Disney to me anymore, but I do think that opening stuff, especially with Daryl Sabera, feels, all right, I'm in a Disney movie, cool. Yeah. But then I quickly forget about it until the end. Because they don't even use narration, which I'm fine with. It just feels like they're setting up, like, the movie's going to use narration, and it never does. 
researching this, and then of course you said Pirates of the Caribbean is actually not as important to you, but it is strange that this movie was so expensive, and of course, you know, it's Andrew Stanton, and there's a lot written about why Andrew Stanton made it more expensive, but it seems like if you're making a live-action Disney movie, it's not going to be, like, critically acclaimed. These things aren't generally expected to do super well. Like, why would you, like... <laughs> In the future, we'll talk about Tomorrowland. <laughs> just well, I just mean like That's National enough. Treasure was was relatively cheap. But then after National Treasure, the director goes on to do Sorcerer's Apprentice, and it bombs, and it's way more expensive. Well, yes. I, I think what's, what's interesting is, I feel like this was something I wanted to mention earlier when we were talking about the budget, is that we're currently, and I think I might have mentioned alluded to it briefly, but since we talked about the New Indiana Jones, we're in a summer of a lot of balloon budgets right now. Where an Indiana Jones movie doing the numbers Dial of Destiny is doing should be a success, but the movie inexplicably costs like $350 million. Some of that's COVID. Other stuff is like, we wanted to de-age him for 25 minutes. And it's like, that wasn't a good use of money. <laughs> like, like, very obviously not a great use of money. Um, mm-hmm. Where it's like, where were the ideas to cut this down? I think it's really interesting that we're back at this with, and also like, you know, like Mission Impossible costs a lot too, but that's different because it's like, COVID delays and stuff, COVID reshoots. But even with COVID delays and COVID... Indiana Jones should cost at most $100 million cheaper than, like, what it is. Right? There's no reason it should be $350 million. Mm-hmm. And I know other people listening to this who are northern will be like, well, Danny, that's just because there was a leak and all these movies that have reported budgets are actually more expensive than they're talking about. I'm like, okay, I also think Black Panther will cost forever cost too much. Sorry. <laughs> like, these, the, all these movies cost way too much now for what they're giving you. Mm-hmm. Except for Avatar 2. Which, like, gives you what you expect. Or, like, for example, like, I have I have the biggest box office bombs open to just for inflation. At number seven is Strange World, which just came out. Cost $180 million. Mm-hmm. Elemental cost $200 million. Although I wanted to add something to Elemental because I think we refer to it in our Cars 2 episode as a recent failure. Elemental is currently actually having a fantastic box office run. Oh, wow. I feel like we should acknowledge that. Um, it has... Kind of insane legs. It is now. Now this is gonna be a bit of like an asterisk where it's like it's the biggest Disney grocer animated grocer since Frozen Two. Okay, fine, of course, because Frozen Two was when they put out right before the pandemic. I think the more interesting stat is that worldwide it is the biggest American animated movie that's original since Coco. Um, and I think that's a very that's a big thing to be proud of. I think it's it's at worst it's going to break even now. Right, that is how good it's doing in its legs. Um, it's going to make more than The Flash, despite opening 20 million less than Flash did. Part of that's also Flash had terrible legs. Flash, another movie that's over, over budgeted for what it is. I feel like we should shout that out as, you know, a Pixar podcast is like, this movie is obviously still like being narrated. And it, cause it is, it's just gonna break even, you know, at, at best. Or, or at worst, or at best, you know, it'll break even or maybe like make a couple million in profit. But the thing is also, you know, this will become something that's on Disney Plus that is like something people want to see because it's a movie a lot of kids are seeing over the summer. It's popular with ki- like all my kids at summer camp liked it, you know? Why do you think that is that it's lasting so long? I think it's the only movie right out right now for children, children. And I say that because I know there are a lot of people who don't want to take their kids to see Spider-Verse because it's too scary. They don't want to see Little Mermaid because some kids can't do live action at all when they're really young. Like I've that is a that is a phenomenon I've heard that like children yeah. are just like, I can't see a live action movie. Like it's too scary. Um, I get that. And it's really, Elemental is like the only option. And I also think, you know, in a way it's bad buzz helped it because most people are going, even I went into it, like, you know, I gave it a three out of five. I was still like, 
Still better than I expected because I had so much bad buzz. <laughs> and I think that's pretty much every mistake is like most parents are like, yeah, it was better than we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And most kids are like, I like it. And the thing is also, again, since it's a new property, Disney, again, it's not going to be a huge property for Disney, but you know, there'll be toys available for at the parks. There'll always be, so even with Disney Plus success, they're always going to be able to sell DVDs of these things. And it's like, it's going, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, when Disney's concerned, like when their Q, their quarterly statement comes in, what they're going to be more concerned about? Elemental barely breaking even or Indiana Jones? <laughs> and it's, it's definite huge. Like Indiana Jones, I feel like will join this list once its run is over. I do think it's going to happen. I think the new Indiana Jones is going to hit this list. It's amazing. That's a surprise to me. And it's amazing how many films on that list of biggest box office bombs are contemporary things that you've heard about. Pan. I feel like putting out Pan's on this list. Pan's on, yeah, probably people remember Pan. Those Monster Trucks was what I was thinking of when I stood out to me. It's like, oh yeah, that was a big bomb. Yeah, I mean, everyone, I don't know, for some reason the names are escaping me right now, but like Cowboys and Aliens, if there was some big blockbuster that you thought was kind of goofy that it's on this list because it cost a ton of money and people thought it was goofy and then didn't go and see it. I wanted to jump back really quickly to the movie, and then we can talk more about like the marketing and the failure of it. Mm-hmm. But it, something that popped in my head when I was just talking about, and it was something I had in my notes to talk about too, when I was talking about taking the kids to see Elemental, which is that, you know, I also mentioned that we did see Mario recently. And the big, and it's actually, it's kind of funny. Whenever I talk about Illumination on this podcast, the only time I ever compliment them is like, I sound like a YouTuber who's like, ah, finally, an animation studio that's afraid, not afraid to like, not be woke you know like ah finally because you know i was like finally minions there's hijacking jokes again and i'm gonna mm-hmm. say something the weird thing that stands out to me about mario is that the and again it's based off mario but it's like there's one woman character in the movie and she exists to be objectified by the bad guy like i want to marry her and i just think that's really interesting that like it's a like like nintendo was so like hands on with that movie they're like yeah make make jack black wanna wanna be with a, a teenage girl sure that's fine well, like, that's classic that's so mario weird though to me. it is classic mario but it's just also like it's so weird to see this in a movie these days because these kids movies are always so careful about this type of thing doesn't she ride a motorcycle yeah she rides so like the the you know it's one of those things where, you know, YouTubers in the bill of her like, I can't believe Mario's being woke and having her be. And then it started being successful. It's like, Chris Pratt has new success. Woke Hollywood can't cancel him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned woke because there's one YouTube video. If you go up and search for John Carter clips, which I did before I watched the movie. I did this really early on because I was like, what if we hate John Carter and this is a bad episode that we shouldn't do? So I wanted to see clips of it. And there's a compilation video. And one of the top comments is like, finally, a big space movie. And this was back before they started putting all the woke in the movies. <laughs> and that was like... That is kind of what this movie is with the whole white cast. <laughs> and refusal to acknowledge anything with like, he's a confederate soldier. Yeah, well, they kind of do it. But, that, but it's during that actually pretty engaging exposition scene where he keeps... There's a scene early on, I'm not being super clear about it. They keep, they capture Taylor Kitsch and they're interrogating him in their cabin or whatever, all these Union soldiers led by Brian Cranston. And as soon as Brian Cranston starts to get going about Taylor Kitsch's background or like why they're searching for him, Taylor Kitsch jumps out a window and then there's a cut to them fighting. And then, and then you cut back to Taylor Kitsch 
like increasingly tied up as they keep trying to tell him why he's being arrested and this happens like three times just a fun series of sight gags yeah i was i was a fan and you're right it is it is i i felt like there were a lot of like visual animation jokes in this movie but i i did feel like for it being animation i just to go back to something i mentioned earlier i felt like the action was really lacking i think about star wars right and there's a difference between a good star wars dogfight and a bad star and they're so always obvious you know a good star wars dogfight you're going to be excited for the, the whole thing really like trying to keep track of stuff and you're going to be able to and then you get bad ones and it's just your eyes completely glaze over and you wait to like get cut back to the characters talking like and i think about like i also like could even like point out to top gun maverick for that like that's an engaging dog fight because if it wasn't engaging which i feel like there's been i'm trying to think of another like movie with planes besides like oh i can think of one um it's another can oh well we already mentioned him earlier uh the john finn majors movie that came out last year devotion which is about airplane dog fights i'm revealing the dog fights were just so dull in that especially when it came out the same year as top gun maverick and i think these movies i think this movie has dull dog fights that's my whole point here the only exciting action scene is james purfoy <laughs> Which is yeah, and which I also is a like joke. the bit at the end with the shapeshifter. I like the bit at the end where, like, in the third act, where he's trying to chase Mark Strong. Oh yeah, it actually is really cool when Lynn Collins is holding herself hostage, and she's talking, and because of like because she's she's it's Mark Strong as her, and he's like behind her. So when he talks as Lynn Collins, he moves the hair of the Lynn Collins in front with his slash her chin. It's just a really neat, like, look at us make this special effect work. Look at the characters interact with that moment. That's really cool. And I love I love the bit when he's John Carter. That's a weird, weird moment to me. I think that's Taylor Kitsch's probably his best acting in the movies when Mark Strong is being John Carter and asking um, the Thark, Willem Dafoe, for the... Tars uh, Tarkus. Yeah, Tars Tarkus, which I kept thinking of, you know... You know, we're all on a Nolan kick right now, because this episode, I feel like we should acknowledge, is coming out Bar- Barbenheimer Day, which I guess is what we finally landed on calling this day, you know? Yeah, I was a little I was a little flipped when the New York I Times... I still just like calling it Barbie Oppenheimer. Well, I called it Barbieheimer, and then the New York Times did Barbenheimer, and I was like, okay, I guess you have the bigger platform, New York Times. I just like calling it Barbie Oppenheimer. I I, I think you got to go for the whole the whole thing, Barbie Oppenheimer. Or if you're going to shorten one, you should go Barbie Oppie. I'm okay with calling Oppenheimer Oppie. That seems like a you thing. I don't know if other people. There's can get literally on board. a documentary that was critically acclaimed on Netflix uh, on Amazon last year called Goodnight Oppie, which was about the space thing named Oppenheimer. Like, and then shutting down, like, the lunar module Oppenheimer. It's not unusual to... It's, it, there's a documentary of that name. The, so the specific action thing, which I feel is an example of something that doesn't work, but it's more of a plot issue. It's, it's hard to get into the specifics of why the fights themselves don't work. And I feel like it's simply a matter of managing space poorly. Like, there are so many moments where my eye is going to the wrong place, or it's a close-up without any context, that kind of thing. But the, really, the the moment that I dislike, which has as much to do with poor choreography as it does with story confusion, is Deja Thoris, the princess, after being told by her father that she'll have to marry the evil Dominic West, uh, escapes, and she apparently ends up on a ship that is flying away from Helium and flies over John Carter where he's staying with the Tharks. 
but we don't know that she's on the ship until she's being knocked off the ship and it doesn't it's not clear like where she's come from or why or really why it would be uncool for a princess to be on the ship and i guess like after the fact you think oh she's hiding from her father but there's this confusing fight and then she just kind of like falls off the ship at the end and then she's captured by the tharks but we don't really like see her get on the ship or you know, she's not even like, oh, you soldier, you don't stand correctly. What are you doing here? I think this goes back to also what I was saying about this movie feels dense. And a part of it is also just, you know, what you're talking about, the editing and the spacing, is that I get confused about the stuff because it's not directed clearly. And again, we're rushing through all this stuff really to get this runtime. Like at the, t- I-, I think I looked at like when the credits started, it was like 201 or 203. Kind of short, but also to those things where it's like, also, <laughs> I was like, please end. <laughs> I know. I'm enjoying this. Because I do, I do ultimately, I, I am ultimately coming down. This is like a three out of five movie. It's too interesting for me to like completely write it off. Yeah. Um, But it would. Be- it's such a flawed movie that it's also like, end, please, you know? <laughs> yeah, I feel like it'd be like with Transformers last night. I mean, I actually... I like just watching the Transformers like that, but it, it might be a good movie to like smoke some weed and just put on and kind of tune in and out of and be like, what, what is that? You know, I feel like it has lots of that movie, but again, like you mentioned this earlier, like we have that whole sequence at the end where you think the movie's going to start wrapping, wrapping up and you're like, nah, arena fight, <laughs> we're going to do a arena. Mm-hmm. which actually, you know, like when I was rereading the Wikipedia summary, like a couple, not like, like 30 minutes ago in this conversation, I came across that part. I'm like, this all really makes, like, a lot of, like, good dramatic sense, you know? To leave that plotline hanging with Tars Tarkin and then resolve it again before your third act. But the issue is, is it feels like you're going straight into the third act because of the urgency you said. But it's also, like, you should resolve this stuff because you set up this whole thing with Tars Tarkin and his daughter. But also, again, this is a two-hour movie. This is, you're, 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 this is like, for the two-hour, 30-minute, without credit, Dune Part 1. You know what I mean? Like, that. yeah. That's when you can, like, address all this stuff. It's not, like, in the two-hour, this-is-the-only-movie-we're-making version. Even, I don't know, I actually don't like the Tars Tarkas and his daughter thing. I think it would work better if better pacing and if you, like, fleshed out those characters more. Well, sorry, you look mad. No, I don't, I'm not, I'm, not, I I'm sorry off. to look mad. I'm just, I'm trying to make a face that is, like, expectant of you to reach the point that I'm, I want to make, which is in the book, they spend more time establishing... Oh my, okay, okay, so like, here's the thing, the book is also not very good, but if you want to get high and listen to the audiobook and come in and out of that, that's also enjoyable, but in the book, they let you know that Tars Tarkas is like one of the few good Green Martians, and that's like very uncool of Edgar Rice Burroughs, but like, okay, he's one of the few good Green Martians because he actually like, is capable of, of love, and he has a... I feel like that's in the movie. That is totally in the movie, though, where it's like, you know, um, you're going to be like, not not enough. But, like, it is in the movie where he's like, how do you know who my daughter is? That's something we're not supposed to know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's something we're not supposed to know. But in the, the book reveals it towards the end. It basically reveals it right before the arena fight, which the arena fight's also earlier. But, it, it, well, like, where the arena fight is, that's when you learn that Tars Tarkas has a daughter. And... You also, like, why is Sola 
so caring for John Carter when all of the other Tharks are so mean to their children. And there is this really interesting mystery because Tars Tarkas is not just the Willem Dafoe charismatic character, but he's also like this outsider who really warms up to John Carter because he can't be as caring when he's being a warlord because he wants to change it because the guy Tal Hadjus, who is in this movie, he's just kind of a mean warrior. Tal Hadjus is like, in the book, he's like the leader of the Tharks and he's corrupt and he's the reason why they're all like being evil and uncaring with each other. In the book, Sola, his daughter Thark, who has been a companion of John Carter for a long time, tells this really interesting story about how her father was a farmer who loved a woman and loved her so much that he didn't want to, like, abandon his child for the good of the, the colony, not the colony, where do they live, like, the for the good of the community or whatever. And so he pledges himself to rise secretly through the ranks of the Tharks until he can become such a high level that he can kill the leader and become the leader of the Tharks. And I think it's really interesting to tell the story of a farmer who goes from being like a pacifist to becoming a warrior in order to kill the evil leader of his people to make them a peaceful people again. And that's that's not that doesn't happen if in the second scene you meet Tars Tarkas, he's like he's like is she your daughter? And it's like why does that matter? Don't they all have to... It's like, oh, okay, we're not supposed to, like, acknowledge that they have daughters. They're supposed to, like, care for people randomly. Okay, whatever. It's one of the coolest parts of the book is Sola's monologue about how her dad, like, infiltrated the warring Thark society and tried to rise through the ranks of people. This, once again, goes back to the thing where it's like, this should be an, this should be a, an adult animated series someday, hopefully. Hopefully someone tries to crack at it and, you know, actually isn't... Because my other thing is, I you know, reading these quotes from Stanton, and I know we don't want to put words in his mouth, but I feel like the underlying thing is, like, I don't want to mess with the novel too much. These novels are great. I love them as a kid. I don't want to mess with them too much. But it's like, you should have! <laughs> They're 100 years old. You should have tried to interrogate these a bit more and taken what you liked and addressed what you don't. Yeah, and then maybe it could have gotten, like, the Avatar buzz, where now, did Avatar 2... Has it been long enough for Avatar 2 to get nominated for something? What year is it? Avatar 2 was nominated at the Oscars last year. It won visual effects. Okay. And they famously um played off the visual effects people, so Jimmy Kimmel had time to make a joke about it, and it's like, why would you do this when this is, like, one of the two wins of the night everyone watching has seen? Because everyone was Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. you know? Winning sound. Those are the two movies everyone watching has seen. Like, it doesn't matter. Like... Every single person who would care enough to have a TV to watch ABC had seen. I'm thrown off because now they're saying who the Emmy, Emmy nominations are, and they're saying that the White Lotus came out, like, this past this season, and I'm like, what? Because TV, TV seasons are weird. TV seasons, like, end in June and start in... Sorry, start in June and in May. Those Emmy nominations were... <laughs> oh, you're not happy? I didn't really look through them too much. Uh, well, okay. First off, Conheads rise up. We won. Alan Ruck got the nom. <laughs> Thank God. Those noms otherwise suck in that category. Oh, well, of course. Of course, we always love Matthew McFadden. I'm not mad about Matthew McFadden. Uh, and I actually think Alexander Skarsgård did very good on this season of Succession. I don't watch White Lotus, so I don't have an opinion there. It just sucks that all the noms are Light Lotus in succession. Also, come on. Very prime opportunity to nominate Stellan Skarsgård and Alexander Skarsgård in the same year in the same category. That would have been fun. But as someone who doesn't watch a lot of TV, like, you know, I watched Succession, The Last of Us, Barry. I didn't watch a new season of Ted Lasso, but whatever. I just don't understand how you can... Of course, I watched Andor, which is my point I'm going to make. I don't see how you can watch Andor 
and not nominate, well, multitude of things. They nominated the One Way Out episode for writing, which makes sense. I don't know how you nominate the show for series and for writing, but don't nominate Andy Serkis and guest actor. I don't understand how you can like this show that much and not do that. Likewise, I don't know how it gets a lead. Like, it, it got nominated for Best Drama Series. I don't know how it gets that without acting nominations. Because that show is a Star Wars show that's driven on its writing and its acting. I also think, uh, and this is Brian Cox's fault because he submitted in lead, I think that's bogus. He took away a slot from someone who deserves it more than him. And it's like, dude, you should have gone in guest actor or supporting actor. You would have won an Ivor. You would I, I legit think he would have beat Matthew McFadden just because he doesn't have one. Mm. But it's like... You're just being a jerk in a way. And I think you could say that. You read these interviews of Brian Cox. He's, a, he's an ordinary person. Oh, I don't know anything about them. Uh, well, anyway, we're rooting for Kieran here. At least I am. That'd be wild. It's really fu- It's really funny to be like, be like, yeah, these Emmys should probably nominate over shows. But also, I really did dig the Succession final season. So I don't mind them getting their, their, their flowers. <laughs> we should talk about the score of John Carter. We've listened to three Giacchino scores in a row. I think this one's incredible. I love the score of this movie. I, again, you know, Luke, I was listening back to our Cars 2 episode, and Luke dropped the take that, and I'll text him out afterwards, I'm like, I'm warning you, I'm going after your take on the John Carter episode, because I was too tired to do it in our Cars 2 episode. But it's like, I don't know, none that stood out, I couldn't hum it. I'm like, okay, I can't hum John Carter, but here's the thing, the score was highlighted in the action scenes, the score was frequently beautiful, and... Weirdly enough, I don't think, I think Giacchino is melodic in a lot of his scores. I don't think this is a very melodic score. I think this is aiming for something bigger than that. I think this is, like, trying for that David Lean scope. Um, and I really love that about the score. I, I let the, the credits I roll on Disney Plus because I wanted to listen to how the score ended. Because I just thought it was a phenomenal score all the way through. Um, and I know I said, like, I like the Cars 2 score. But, like, this is really, this is one of the best Giacchino scores I've ever heard. And I'm like, ah, fantastic. I love this. I can't even tell it's him, really. Because I feel like all of his scores kind of, like, fall into the same. Because I was thinking very specifically also compared to his Rogue One score, which is a score that's grown on me as I've watched the movie more. But I still don't like the Rogue One score compared to, like, obviously John Williams and some other Giacchino stuff. But this is like, ah, this is what I wish the Rogue One score had been. This felt very John Williams-y, and I just kind of wanted to hear if you thought that was a good or a bad thing. Because that was my thought. It was, like, who did the score for this? It feels this? more John this Williams-y like than John um, Williams. the, the Rogue One score does. But I also don't think it's very melodic. I really don't think it's melodic. I should say that I've been very critical of Michael Giacchino, and then I was just kind of bopping around yesterday, and I realized that he wrote the Star Trek 2009 theme, which is, like, Great obviously theme. fantastic. fantastic theme. So I just want to, you know, I'm, I am I can be wrong sometimes. Although, if you listen to that full song, it does begin with, like, da 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 which is just, like, it could be any tense moment in Incredibles. Then it gets to the theme, and you're like, ah, oh, Star Trek 2009. I think the thing about Giacchino, and I think we've said this on the podcast before, and it's my, my prevailing theory with him, is that he gets too busy. And... Every once in a while, he finds a project he can really focus on. Um, I just rewatched Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is a score in my initial review on Letterboxd. I'm like, the score is bad outside the Copa theme. And now I watch, I'm like, nah, I've been watching so much Giacchino stuff that this is definitely one of his better stuff. Like, it's not too big. It's fitting the tone of the movie. And it's playful enough while not sacrificing the atmosphere here. So what you really need is a director who's willing to work with Giacchino to bring something good out of him. Because I do like his Brad... I do like his Mission Impossible score, even if it is a little incredible, but that's okay because it's a Brad Bird movie. Here, it's like Andrew Stanton's really working with him. I also think... Uh, well, okay, I'm going to... We're going to talk this story. I had a thought about this in our least recent run of episodes, but 
I feel, but with Cars too, it's like I like the main theme, but it is just you know Giacchino doing a Bond score. It's not like Glasser's building anything out of it, giving getting anything really big out of it, compared to like say these ones or like how Pete Doctor or Brad Bird get out of them. Because I I think I mean, we'll talk about this on the Inside Out score at the Inside Out episode. I think Inside Out score is the most underrated aspect of that movie. That's a movie that everyone praises constantly either good or bad like I, like I don't care where you fall on it but the score never gets its flowers and I think the score of that movie because I actually remember bringing it up in our Parks episode it's like you go to that ride of Inside Out you hear it you're like ah yes that's Inside Out immediately can recognize the movie it's from but I do think he stretches himself too thin sometimes I also do like the ending I do like I don't know if that is that in the novel where it's like that they get married uh, you, you kept complaining to me that they no, got married no 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 that's not the ending of the movie there's 10 minutes of the movie after that uh, where I know I says like let's wrap this up, but I like the ending of the frame story where it's like it was a big uh, ploy for you to get a thirk here for me, uh, and this was like my, my last ditch effort to do this, and I, it worked, so I'm glad. I like that. And I like Daryl Severo's confusion during it. Well, that's not that's not in the book. <laughs> I don't know if the book has like a frame story, but I know if it's like this was a letter written to me by my great like my uncle. Oh, it is. Know? Yeah, but I mean, it has the frame story, but it's just like. By the way, hey, Edgar Rice Burroughs, write this down. Okay, now we're in the story. It doesn't have all of the, like, and then my uncle appeared to me, and there was this guy who looked like Mark Strong, and then this happened. Like, that's not in it. It just kind of ends. But, I mean, I actually did really like that, too, because I was trying to, like, mentally work out how that would work, and then I wasn't expecting that. I thought that was really cool, although I don't know why it took him 10 years to, like, figure that out, you know? I think it's interesting that the head of Disney marketing at this time was a woman named M.T. Carney. I don't know why I said a woman. I Maybe just so that way we make sure we prefer to write her pronouns. Uh, but well, I mean, I think MT you mentioned it you because it's, it's unusual in the history of marketing. Yeah, I feel like the marketing heads I always hear now about are male. She's an outsider who had previously just ran a boutique marketing firm in New York. Her tenure at Disney was from 2010 to early 2012. Basically the entire run of having to figure out how to market this movie. Um, which I feel like checks out with the Disney releases at the time. Because I don't remember Tron Legacy or Pirates of the Caribbean particularly having great marketing. And I feel like, you know, you come in in mid-2010 after Toy Story 3. It's like, what really is in that term at Disney? Right? You, you got some rough stuff. But also, you know, Stanton, we said, had control over the marketing. Cashmere is what is used in all these tra- these movie tracks. Oh, we haven't talked about the tra- We haven't actually talked about the trailers we yet. We haven't talked about the trailers. We really haven't talked about the trailers. Uh, the first one has a Peter Gabriel one, which it's so weird to me. Because these movies, right? These movies have terrible trailers. And ergo, I rewatched these trailers and I remember both of them pretty well. Because I just remember, like, everyone... Because this was a thing. Like, people would talk about, like, like you, you'd go to a movie, you get a trailer for John Carr, and you'd be like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, that looks awful. <laughs> like, this was a, this was a phenomenal, I was talking at work today about how I was actually very excited to record this episode, and everyone's like, okay, cool, what you want? Like, Ratatouille? I'm like, no, we're on John Carter. And, and everyone's like, has, the society has forgotten John Carter. Like, normal people don't know about this movie. I'm like, it is the biggest bomb of all time. And it's from the director of Finding Nemo and Wall. <laughs> they really didn't know about it? It is the reason it? Finding Dory exists. No, because this, this movie has no imprint unless you're, like, a film nerd who, like, knows what bombs are. Oh. Even, like, you bring up Prince of Persia, they're like, oh, the Jake Gyllenhaal one. Yeah, that, was, that wasn't that great. Uh, but, like, John Carter, they're like, what? What is that? And you're like, it's this movie, f- like, based off books by the guy who wrote Tarzan, but it's a space movie. And everyone's like, like, 
no way. And I'm like, it costs $300 million. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, they gave, they gave this, that's, that's what they're thinking. Going, yeah, they gave this $300 million. <laughs> that's what I mean. They were like, why, why would you do that? <laughs> well, so speaking of the trailers, I don't know, man. I think Kashmir is memorable. It's dramatic. I don't mind the inclusion of it. That was something that people were saying is like, who's going to know Kashmir? But also, who knew the semi-deep cut from Pink Floyd uh, Eclipse, which played over Dune, which I also thought was a great trailer. The difference is now, though, now the trailer trend is to use pop songs. You remember, 2012, the biggest movie of the summer, I can remember two trailers of that song. One of them is The Dark Knight Rises, where, you know, the trailer was just the Hans Zimmer music, which, you know, is always a good call. You got Hans Zimmer music usually, although I know Dune didn't. Dune used a cover. Dune used the Hans Zimmer score later. Um, but then, the other biggest movie this summer is a movie I've covered on my other podcast that's now canceled, Wise with Ty and Dan, The Avengers. And that movie, infamously, the trailer for that movie is set to, or at least the first one, is set to Nickelback. And it's like, we're all in this together now! And it was big, huge derision. Everyone, And again, hey, hey, Disney movie. Mm. Under this marketing head. Because the trailer came out in 2011. I remember the second trailer comes out. Around the time, you know, they start... Because that's the other thing, too. You need to remember, the John Carter Super Bowl ad, which is bad, aired the same time... The Avengers Super Bowl ad comes out, and that cements that movie as the biggest movie of the summer, because it has the circle shot and Hulk grabbing Iron Man. Those are both in that trailer, and initially, you know, the first trailer, everyone was like, it looks kind of cheap. It looks, I don't know why they're saying the neck of that music. Second trailer sets it to the Avengers theme, which is new and sounds big and epic, and immediately completely sells that movie, right? Mm -hmm. I think Kashmir, you know, it is like, you know, that first Avengers trailer, where it's like, why would I want to watch that? <laughs> it looks cheap and dumb, and it looks like they're trying to just compete with the Dark Knight, mm-hmm. but with bright colors. Um, specifically, Dark Knight Rises, not like the Dark Knight exactly, but you know. Yeah, it's it's a little. It's hard to find anything especially wrong with the trailers until you watch the fan made trailer. I don't know. I just wasn't super negative about them, and I had some little notes in my mind. And if anyone wants to look at these, they're all on Wikipedia in the same spot, except for that Super Bowl ad, which you have to look up. That's that's really the ass one. You have to look that up. You have to look that one up, though. That is, it's insane to spend Super Bowl money on that ad. Like, how? You're like, oh, it looks good. That looks definitely make people want to see. And also, the thing is, Avengers, right? I said the Avengers ad aired at that time. Avengers comes out on in first week of May. This movie comes out a month later. <laughs> this is after the Super Bowl. And it's like, here's what we got for you. <laughs> it's, we got the title of the movie for you. <laughs> like, in, in every way, it seems like a misfire. It feels like, it's like it's like they pulled their test audience. It's like, do you remember the title of this movie? No. How do we fix this? I got it. <laughs> I got John Carter. <laughs> Maybe it was on Mars before to remember the title of the movie. You have the cool JCM like insignia. <laughs> like Well, really what I what the problem that the people said it was and what I totally agree is that no one no one knew this character and no one knew no one knows the story. So if you reorganize things in the trailer to explain where he comes from, and also what I think is really smart in the fan trailer is because I was like, why do they show Mars so early in this trailer? It should be like, it should be like a shot at the end. You shouldn't, you shouldn't actually see Mars in the trailer until the end of the trailer. 
is is my like big swing take um but they show mars really early it's just like a jumble and they don't explain anything about the context of this character that's that's the big problem for me the, the, these trailers the fr- at least the teaser the teaser should end with the line of dialogue he has where she's showing him like the the solar system and he's like i'm on mars yeah that's where the trailer should end yeah like at least a teaser. Like, later on, if you want to reveal, like, where he is, it's okay. But it's like, this is like, again, you watch this movie, the only thing, the trailer, the only thing that tells you if he's on Mars is, you know, the shot of Mars, which could be just an alien planet anyway, because it's, you know, it's yeah alien movie. <laughs> like, I wanted to mention something I also noticed on the wiki page, which is interesting, because, like, to go back to my casting thing, and also tying with Dune, is that apparently one of the things they got worried about, the first thing that made him worry was that the Conan the Barbarian remake with Jason Momoa bombed. I think Jason Momoa would have also been a better pick here. At least, maybe not in 2012. I don't know how good his acting was then, because I'm, I'm not familiar. But, like, Jason Momoa in Dune is what I want from John Carter in this. Mm-hmm. He's a little too much of a muscle guy, but I know what you mean. Like, he's he's really, like, overflowing with charisma. I just think it's interesting, because Wiki lists three movies that caused Disney's concern, which was Conan the Barbarian, Cowboys and Aliens, which was another bomb. Well, but I don't think actually... Was Cowboys and Aliens a huge bomb? Is it on that list? Is it on the list? I just saw it as something that didn't I don't think do it is. Well. I think it's just... I think it's, like, um... I guess one of those bombs that, like, pretty much breaks even, like... But the mar but just never include marketing, so it's like a bomb because it didn't it made it back, but they still spent money on marketing, so it's still lost money. Mm-hmm. But then there's parts of the Caribbean, but that's a movie that makes decent amount overseas, and I remember kind of disappointing domestically. Pirates Four, give give a movie to Rob Marshall if you want it to cost a lot and look really bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the movie, you know, I'll put it this way: there was reported. I'll just read the Wikipedia. It was reported. Four months after On Stranger Tide's release, that when John Carter went to reshoots, that the movie would have to make $700 million worldwide to justify a sequel. And, of course, the movie makes worldwide $284 million. Mm. Which still seems like a lot, honestly. I feel like overseas really carried. <laughs> yeah. I have never expected anything from these Disney movies. Or Cowboys and Aliens isn't actually a Disney movie. But anything that's kind of like Disney-adjacent, like action with humor... The, these family-friendly-ish things like that. I just don't really think they're going to do well, so I'm as amazed that they, like, just let this one run wild. Can I Can I, Can I? I read my favorite paragraph on Wikipedia? Sure. Well, I'm actually only read a sentence, because the first sentence is setting up, you know, the Stanton Ted talk, you know, that's a good, which was good marketing, except for the fact that, you know, it shows a scene that's clearly worse than the other two scenes. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, side note. I do think it's really weird these trailers... I get why these trailers might not want to have from the director of Wally and Finding Nemo, but I do think today these trailers would have from two-time Academy Award winner, direct Academy Award winning director Andrew Stanton. Mm-hmm. I think that is like a way you can kind of lie to the audience and like, you know what I mean? Like you're not saying what they're for, right? But he is a two-time Academy Award winning for directing movies. So I think that that's something that could have really helped with these trailers. Be like, this is from an acclaimed director. You might not know. Or like maybe like two-time Academy Award winner Andrew Stanton, the director of Wally. I don't think mention, I don't think mentioning Finding Nemo is a bad idea. I do think, I don't think you should do that. I think mentioning Wally could help too. I, um, but the fit on the Wikipedia page I wanted to mention was while that was seen effective, the TED Talk was seen as effective. Some other promotions, such as the Are You the Real John Carter contest, oh, yeah. <laughs> in which men could, who could prove their name, their real name was John Carter, were encouraged to enter a contest where winners would be invited to a special fan screening. <laughs> it's like, 
I, I'm sure John Carter is a common name. I'm not sure people are like, oh man, that movie has my name in the title. It's, I gotta go see it. The, <laughs> I don't think that's something people really think. That's about. such bad marketing too, because it highlights the dumbness of the name of the movie. That, that it's exactly. just a fucking name. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of why I was so excited to come on here and as like talk about this film and I hope that good things have come of this but it really is like everything is right there. There are so many good things that are just right there in front of you there and you can just put it you just shuffle it around a little bit and this could have been something like there is Special. no reason this movie shouldn't have, like, the run that I never, like, did. It, I didn't list it, but I, I have mentioned it before on this podcast. It's, actually, I mentioned it last week because it opened up the same, the summer before the winter. Well, it's whatever. This should make Tron Legacy numbers, right? Tron Legacy has not yet got a sequel. They're trying to finally move on to Tron 3. But it wasn't an embarrassment. It it made back its money. It made $400 million worldwide, right? It, it on a $170 million budget. Again, not great, but it's not like Disney was crying. Because, you know, it. actually, you know what? Tron Legacy is kind of what I talked about with Elemental earlier in its own way. It's like, it might not have moved the needle forward, like, on a sequel and stuff, but it gave Tron a cartoon. It gave Tron video games. It gave Tron cultural cash with our generation that people will be like, oh, Tron, yeah, the cool Daft Punk movie, right? Like, Tron Legacy helped Disney, even if it didn't immediately make its money back. There wouldn't be, like, light cycle rides in the parks now if it weren't for Tron Legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it made Tron a property. Again, John Carter, as I already said, this will never be touched again. <laughs> but same with the Lone Ranger, in a way. Neither of those properties are ever going to be touched again. Lone Ranger could have a TV show, maybe, down the road. Well, but yeah, incredibly, Lone movies. Ranger could have a TV show. Well, you know what I mean. It could have a TV reboot. And I feel like Wiki mentions what I said, too. This movie opens... This is really the key. This movie is competing for the exact same... The idea is John Carter's for the boys. Hunger Games is for the girls. But that's not what The Hunger Games was. The Hunger Games is popular with everyone. Mm -hmm. And if you want to say... Because he also mentions... uh, I don't have the quote. I don't want to quote the quote directly. He mentions that he didn't want the trailer to spoil a lot. Because he remembered seeing trailers for Star Wars that said nothing. And he saw it as a kid and it blew his mind. The difference is that obviously we see stuff like the Star Trek reboots are going on right now at the time this movie comes out. We have space opera movies of a kind. And it's so interesting that John Carter kind of, I feel like, begins the trend of these space opera bonds because you got Jupiter Ascending coming out. You got Valyrian coming out eventually. And these are all like not immediately after John Carter. No way, John Carter, I think John Carter does initially scare other people away from him. They're like, ah, let's try it again. And you have these same exact issues pop up with movies like that mm-hmm. where you're trying to market them. Although at least Jupiter Ascending has from the directors of The Matrix on it, right? Like, you can at least sell it that way. Yeah. But ultimately, what does screw it over, I think, is The Hunger Games and that release date. Because I do think you put it out in some, like in winter against Sherlock Holmes 2 and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. I do think those two movies outgross it. I think, though, this movie at least hits $100 million in the U.S. You know, I think... I think it becomes... Oh, uh, that's what I was leaning to. It's also like, he says it's for little kids. Like, he says, when I was a little kid and I saw Star Wars, I don't think this movie's for little kids, but even if it is, comes out a week after the Lorax. <laughs> right? Like, that's gonna take the little kid audience. Yeah, and I feel like this could even have, like... I don't know how ages actually work, but could this snag, like, 11 and 12-year-olds who want to go see yeah, something definitely. crazy? definitely. I feel like this... I think, I think this is it, because you know how I mentioned Elemental, right? Elemental's for little kids. 
and Spider-Verse is for older kids. I think this is the movie that could be the Spider-Verse to Lorax's Elemental. Yeah, Obviously, that's a I would great expect, comparison. Regardless, like, regardless, I think Lorax would make more money. It's a bigger brand. But I think that that niche was available. And I think it's a niche that the Hunger Games didn't touch. The issue was is these trailers gave no reason for anyone to want to see this because they were too vague and they expect you to know, oh, it's John Carter. And then it's like, who is JohnCarter.com? And it's like, what? What? Just just tell me who he is. Just like, put me, like, again, John Carter Mars, but even like JohnCarterMars.com, right? That would even give you more than what the movie is. Something that I think unites this movie, Jupiter Ascending and Valerian, at least the trailers, especially for John Carter, but this comes a little more from me having watched Jupiter Ascending, and also seeing trailers of Valerian. When I see these trailers and the th- the art, the, like a 90-minute arc is not clear, I look at this and I see all these locations and I'm like, man, this movie is long. They go to like five places, which is too many places for, you know, whatever. That That just seemed like a weird thing to me about what they did decide to show in the trailers is like, well, you're not showing me like... There isn't, there isn't actually a lot of, like, mind-blowing action in John Carter, but I actually don't think there has to be. But they really did show you all of the the magnificence of these giant CGI spaces. But all that does is tell me, like, wow, we're going to spend, like, seven acts in all, to get to all of these places. What's up with that? So They kept selling it on the arena fight, which is why I feel like the arena fight has to be there, because that was the big selling point. But it's also... Weirdly, I think it's the main thing in this movie that feel like the set piece that feels the most derivative because the most recent big space off our movies to these movies, besides, of course, Star Trek 2009, which is just now beginning a new franchise. This is the summer that, um, no, actually it's not. It's Star Trek in the Darkness is a year away still. That's not even in marketing yet. The big ones were the Star Wars prequels and the arena sequence is just Attack of the Clones, right? Like it's immediately you think of that when you see yeah. it. Um, I want to read an anecdote also from the article I was talking to you about beforehand, which is directly on the Wikipedia page, which is that Lindsay Collins, who's the producer of this film, remembers walking in on the red carpet and seeing Rich Ross, who's the guy who he said had to resign from Disney after the failings of this Mars Needs Moms and The Lone Ranger, whispered something in the ear, which immediately made, oh, whispered something into Taylor Kitsch's ear. And so she ran up, she couldn't, he immediately was like, I'm giving a face. The wiki says he suddenly stepped back. So she caught up to Taylor Kitsch. She's like, what did, what did Rich just say to you? And he said, and Taylor Kitsch was like, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a fucking disaster. That's the quote from Taylor Kitsch gave to Rich Ross that he gave, you know, like all telephone down. That is the quote. It's going to be a fucking disaster. You said that at the premiere. And you know what? Like, I do think like it was probably obvious in testing this movie, even beyond the marketing, that this was a movie that was going to be hard to connect to audiences. Specifically, and again, I go back. It's that release date. That it really is just this release date already. Like people aren't in the mood for this thing in March. I really don't think so. Maybe kids are, but this always needed to appeal to more than kids if it was going to make that money back. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to shout out this quote from Robert Zemeckis, um, where from the early two thousands when he was handed the novels, and he was like, "I don't think so." George Lucas has really plundered these books. I like that there's a Zemeckis quote in this wiki page. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised that everyone, like Andrew Stanton, says he grew up reading these books, but he's he's not 
like the oldest guy in the world. And obviously a lot of these influenced George Lucas and James Cameron. It's just interesting to me that like these books were so influential so long after they were published. I feel like th something like War of the Worlds or The Time Machine, they would go on to influence serials. And of course, we know that serials are the thing that influenced George Lucas. It's so interesting to me that Andrew Stanton was like, no, I read the original John Carter and I'm going... No problem adapt. No problem adapting the original John Carter, but he was he was like my resource is this old. I'm going back to it and I'm going to bring that into the present, which is kind of ignoring all of the things which had happened in space operas since then. There have been so many variations. You know, you know, evol evolutions from the original. Like, all right, these are your set pieces and they're in space, so now do your variations on them. It's just wild to me that Andrew Stanton wasn't claiming any of those as his inspirations, but he was going back to John Carter. What I also just find so fascinating is how Disney doesn't seem to learn any lessons from the bombing of John Carter. <laughs> they put Tomorrowland into production, and, you know, you might think Tomorrowland doesn't. No! Literally into 20, like, into 2020, Artemis Fowl is a movie they put into production. And that's a movie that's worse than these like either of those two and it's a movie that's clearly never going to work mm -hmm. and they they constantly do these big budget movies where they give a filmmaker a ton of money and there's just the, nothing really like you get cool idiosyncrasies like john carter where it's like i i it's not a movie i love or even really like but it's a movie i respect <laughs> like i think that's the best way to put it but it's just why does this keep happening and in a way i think of the ones i said john carter is easily the best mm -hmm. but even then it's like so clearly like this movie's never going to connect with the budget you gave it like i i said the best case scenario for this was what tron did and i think tron could have made more you know i think a, a better received tron legacy makes more money than what it did but i think a better received john carter still makes what tron legacy made does that make sense uh i suppose so just because it's like he should have directed another live action thing before doing John Carter. I'm really excited because you know he is. Re I mean, we've talked about this before. He's filming something right now in live action, like a searchlight film. Yeah. That apparently is rumored to cost a lot of money too. Um, but. Well, okay, but the difference is he's cut his teeth now, like on Stranger Things and on TV now. So mm -hmm. they're probably more willing for it. And also, again, it's one of those things, you know, like he'll, he made Finding Dory for them as like, basically, he's like, I'll do Finding Dory because I made John Carter fine. So I'm sure if this movie bombs, he's like, all right, I'll do Finding Nemo 3, I guess. It's fine. Mm -hmm. I think that that's just something he'll always have as a backer. He's like, I guess I can do whatever Finding Nemo movie, which makes sense. Yeah, it seems like IP is such a gamble. And with something like Artemis Fowl, which are books that I love, I remember the, the marketing for that movie also had the same problem with John Carter, where it had, a you know, you could really sell the premise, but they didn't really do that in the trailers. Artemis Fowl... Is something that Disney should have looked at. It's something where it was just too long in development as a movie. It's so obvious it should be a, a TV show. Like, that's the only way that property is going to work is if you can flesh it out as a TV show. Because there's no way to make that a popular kids movie, I think. Mm -hmm. That's just me, though. As someone who only read, like, the first two books growing up. I, but I remember even thinking... It's kind of a Percy Jackson. You know, they're finally making those TV shows. I remember when they, made it, they were making a movie. I was like, why? It should be a TV show. Mm -hmm. 
Like, it's such a clearly, like, Avatar The Last Airbender-esque. Like, to me, that's where I, like, as a child, I put Percy Jackson Avatar The Last Airbender, like, on, like, the same, like, that's what this media is, right? The Incredibles is something else. I'm glad that you mentioned that, because my brain immediately went to, like, Andor-style kind of prestige series, and I'm forgetting that things can be like Avatar, which can be great, but it's really just, like, a short story every week or so, or whenever Avatar came out. But, like, yeah, that's also, Artemis Fowl would be great for that. I think the new Percy Jackson show is kind of what... I will be interested to see how that... I assume it will be a success for Disney. You know, I do think that's going to be like an IP selling think point for Disney Plus once it's out. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how... I don't have any stats for this, but if I remember right, the Netflix series Unfortunate Events was like one of their biggest hits ever. Because, you know, they're popular books and people like seeing what they read on TV. Wisdom. Like, which is probably why John Carter was greenlit. Forgetting, oh no, everyone who read this when it came out is dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for a correction that I mentioned a bit earlier, I stupidly said that this film was produced by Lindsay Collins because I saw the word Collins in the article. Um, I'm thinking of. Wait, I am thinking of Lindsay Collins. I think you confused Lindsay Collins with Lynn Collins when you shared that anecdote about getting bad news yeah, on the Yeah, that's red basically carpet. it. I do, I do, because I was like, why would, why would the producer be right by Taylor Kitsch? And now I realize, oh yeah, it was Lynn Collins. Anyway, that's all. That's, that's what I, I wanted to correct. Mm-hmm. I had one last point I wanted to make, then we can really start wrapping it up, is I think it's really interesting as someone who's, you know, like a Pixar fan, this is like, you know, when I'm in high school, so I'm not like, not like now where it's like, I'm really following these directors specifically. I think it's fascinating that in a year span, John Lasseter, Brad Bird, and Andrew Stanton all release a film. And that's kind of crazy in and of itself, that these all come out within months of each other. Um, Because these are literally, besides Pete Docter, this is the, this is Pixar. Right? This is what you, these are the four men you think of when you think of Golden Age Pixar. And they all put out something. And two of them, well, I think it's pretty safe to say, you know, one of them is critical reception and audience reception. One of them is great, one of them is middling, and one of them is bad. And that goes for all three in different ways. Even though I like Cars too, I obviously acknowledge this is the very poorly received, whereas John Carter, I believe, has mixed reviews. I, I didn't actually look at the Rotten Tomato score. I think it's like in the 60s, though, right? I, I think it's much, I think it's lower than that. It's 52%. Yeah. It's literally, it's mid-tier. It's literally in the middle, whereas Cars 2 was low. Yeah, because everyone's just like, yeah, I don't know. Do we want to talk about what we think about when we think about Pixar with this? Or, I don't really think they're, I think the movie's so, so much its own animal that it's hard to even talk about Yeah, that, I think it's, you know? It, this, <laughs> this is really more of, like, Disney live-action things. It's like, oh, there's, like, kid humor in here and harmless action. And then sometimes something scary happens. That's more what it says to me. It will be interesting later this year because I, I don't actually... I'm pretty sure we do get it this year because I'm pretty sure our Inside Out schedule episode is scheduled for this year. So I do think we get to 2015 this year. It's going to be interesting re-watching Tomorrowland having seen John Carter. Because I remember not liking Tomorrowland. I think I'm still going to not like it. I think, if anything, Tomorrowland makes will make me like this more. Mm-hmm. Especially knowing that, you know, Brad Bird made Mission Impossible, which was good. I don't know. Tomorrowland is really the film that I know nothing about and I'm like, it could go either way. That's another movie that got me mad too. And a movie that I'll definitely talk another podcast where I'll talk about The Hunger Games a bit on it because I think that movie is very much weirdly about an angry old man yelling at the sky that he's mad for the Hunger Games is popular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, is, that is really what Tomorrowland is about. Should we give this film things? Yeah. Well, a lot of people on review shows like this, which I don't know, this isn't exactly a review show, but we do review a lot of movies. They like to give films things like star ratings or number ratings to express how they feel about it. We like to fit. We like to actually give films something like a present 
This could be like a physical object or like an experience or whatever we feel in our hearts. So, Danny, what do you want to give it? All right. I think it's pretty obvious what to give for this. Um, you know, the... Well, okay. I think the obvious thing would be like, I'm giving it the adult animated adaptation, but I don't think that's giving this movie something. That's giving the property of John Carter something, which isn't really what I want. I think this movie does deserve at least one positive legacy, which is something I've already praised, besides the James Purefoy scene, um, as one deserving legacy it deserves. And that is the score. And I think this score really should be considered one of Giacchino's best. Uh, I don't know if a vinyl exists of it, but if not, I feel like if it does, it probably needs a new pressing. I would like to put the score out on vinyl. I think that'd be really cool to have, even as someone who doesn't collect vinyl. But if you're like a film score nerd who likes vinyl, I think it'd be cool to have that as something you could get. So I would like to give John Carter a vinyl release. Virginia! Virginia. We never said that in this this podcast. I think, well, you said it was the obvious thing, which is where my brain went, but I would like to give it either an animated thing or a live action thing, because I think this could be a lot like Defy of Bloods, where it was originally these two white guys wrote this adventure screenplay and then Spike Lee came in and made it incredible and I feel like like obviously that's what John Carter wants so we just we just need I don't know we need like an indigenous director with the kind of reputation and clout to I'm sorry. make that I'm happen I'm sorry I immediately just thought I immediately just popped in my head, you know, Taiko Waititi to do Akira. <laughs> just popped in yeah, my head. what we really need is Taiko Waititi to do Akira. But, I, but, but Taiko Waititi, what I think is that John Carter needs to be, like, more serious. Like, it can still be fun, but we need somebody who could, he's not as goofy as Taiko Waititi. You know, he's, uh, he's Maori. He's not uh, from the Americas. The, the problem is really, like, there are, there are very good directors. It's just very few people have the amount of cultural capital to make something it's like true. this it happen. Really, it is really just Taika Waititi, who he knows. But, you know, he's a guy who pays it forward, you know, and he finds these voices. Like, he, there's the people on Reservation Dogs. Um, it's a, That's a show I should definitely watch. I've heard only good things. But, like, you know, people, you can reach out to, you mm-hmm. know. And the reason I thought of Spike Lee is because as people like David Fincher get over, they older they do television so that was we need we need you know i was thinking about we need someone to switch to television for this project i was thinking actually about the reservation dogs guy because he did do a couple movies before reservation dogs his name is sterling harjo yeah and Um, i don't want to speak for him because i think this i like this that's that's carter (laughs) you'd be like what the fuck would you want to do john carter but like don't you dare like he, he, he's probably like you know how hard it is to get work in this industry like get to where i'm at in this industry and you want me to take john carter <laughs> like i think that'd be any any person of color filmmakers probably reaction to being offered you want to john carter no <laughs> which is is pretty fair I yeah feel like well and now you've made the probably the greatest point which is like not only is no one going to do it because of the box office but also like how did you get these stars to to align? You, you know, it's it's basically impossible. No one would want to like do this. They would want they would want to come up with their own original story or just adapt anything else. I do. I legitimately think you can probably be again. It's all like hypothetical. You remember what I legitimately think you go to a studio. You have two options. You pitch an original sci-fi that is basically just John Carter, but. Is titles something different? Or like, I want to readapt John Carter. 
One of them might actually have an exact listen to you. That one's immediately gonna be the second one. Where you're like, I want to read that John Carter. That's immediately like, no, get get out, get out of my office. Why would we ever want to do touch that thing again? Well, what are we doing next time, Danny? Great question. I need to reopen the um, schedule. Our next episode is gonna be special because, as I said, this week today, yep, today this episode came out is the release date as Barbie and Oppenheimer means I, at the recent episode, will be with Mark in New York City, which means we will record our next episode with each other in New York. Might have a different energy. <laughs> you say that like Mark, it's going to suck. Mark's like, I don't want to promise Well, I'm that. just like, I don't know what our, our t- itinerary is going to be like, so hopefully we can make that work. But if not, forget all of that. We are finishing up two great things, and that is Air Mater and Time Travel Mater, which is the end of the Mater, not the end of the car shorts, but the end of the Mater shorts. And then also watching Party Source Rex, which is the final of three Toy Story shorts. That's a very important distinction because the Toy Story tunes continue with Christmas specials, but this is the last short film. All right. Well, go Mars. Anyway, Looking for the Ocean is produced by Mark Young and Danny Vincent. The show is edited by Mark Young. Our original artwork was designed by Sarah Knopf. Follow us on social media at Facebook at Looking for the Ocean, Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod, and Twitter at Pixar Journey, and on our website, Looking for the Ocean, You can follow me on MarkYoungPerformer.com, and my socials are there, and I also have a page dedicated to this podcast now. Ooh, I should look at it. Yes, and is there it's. A picture of me? I, no, okay, I haven't made it. I haven't made it yet. Oh. <laughs> so it might, it might actually, okay. it might actually be a link because I realized in the episode that either just came out or did come out. I was like, I'm gonna do that, and then I did try to do it. and It was like very difficult. So it's not done yet, but like I'm figuring it out. Follow me, Danny, on Letterboxd at Blankman's. Barbie Oppenheimer will be up soonish, I guess. I actually have a planned joke review already for Oppenheimer. We'll see if I go for it or not. But yeah, you can also listen to my other podcast, The Snub Club, where we talk about the movies that most Oscar noms and no wins. We'll see you next time. Unlike Mr. Carter, we'll never see him again. <laughs> <laughs>